0: Michael, my Twitter bio says, passionately curious, reasonably skeptical. And I try to live my life along this motto or whatever, but in general, I think that maintaining a leveled and reasonable skepticism becomes quite difficult when you're trying to simultaneously be passionately curious. And it often opens that door to relativism where anything can go. So my first question for you is what is Curiosity and how do we define and differentiate it from skepticism?
1: Oh, interesting! I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Usually, it's what's the difference between skepticism and cynicism, <laughs> which <laughs> has no relation at all, other than uh, skeptics of beliefs that people hold dear mm. sounds like cynicism to the, to them. Uh, curiosity, well, that is part of the scientific mindset you just want to know what's true that's what we all want to know you know are aliens really out there or not have they really come here or not curious minds want to know and uh the skeptical position is that um the null hypothesis says they're not out there and they haven't come here until you provide evidence accordingly enough to overturn the null hypothesis that is reject your skepticism reasonable skepticism not cynicism not nihilism not we can know nothing but just you know some proportion of evidence to tip you over into accepting the claim as probably true or likely true or whatever and it's curiosity that drives us to try to answer any questions and you know i guess you know there's an evolutionary basis to curiosity of course if you know hungry animals organism as they were behaviorism <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, become more active when they're hungry they're burning more calories to get more calories mm-hmm. um, and so they have to explore their environment branch out to find food for example or mates or whatever um, and, or exploring new territories to find new niches to fill you know this is what animals do and we're animals so curiosity about the world is is you know designed into us. And, you know, there's, there's, we, we've published some articles in Skeptic on the origins of the scientific impulse that is to test hypotheses. The idea is relatively new, just a few centuries old. Uh, and even less than that, if you're talking about randomized controlled trials and statistical tests of hypotheses and things like that, that's less than a century old. But the idea of testing a hypothesis goes back probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of tracking, just tracking, hunting and tracking animals requires um, these bipedal large brain primates to test hypotheses. Well, here's the tracks. Here's what I think the tracks indicate, that the animal is moving this way or that way, and there's shade over there, and there's water over here. What's more likely... To, for this organism to have done then let's go check it out and see that's that's a hypothesis test that's a that's a kind of a scientific way of thinking so I don't think it's it's uh, something that is entirely cultural that is we just made up science as part of the Western tradition I think it's built into the human brain to you know understand cause and effect you know a appears to be connected to B and that's called association learning. You know, classical conditioning and operant conditioning—all that's based on pairing two different stimuli together and see if there's a causal connection or not, which the organism does by responding to the stimulus. So, the whole stimulus-response thing is based on the idea that we try to learn, we try to find cause and effect relationships in the world for survival purposes.
0: Well, I, I think it's it's always easy to fall into that trap of. Of, of either not being skeptical enough of a claim, and perhaps being too skeptical. And when I started this podcast, I remember because I came into it with so many predispositions and so many normative values, I apply to my own uh, scientific view or mindset. And, and the more I've been exposed to varying theories of consciousness, mind, uh, reality, etc, the more it's, it's easier to see how close we're getting to that relativist uh, reality where anything could sort of go. With, with with that sort of framework in mind, do you think that Karl Popper's falsification method, I mean, the, the, trying to differentiate between a pseudoscience and a science, is becoming harder today because of our lack of understanding of the fundamental nature of reality?
1: Um, no, I, I think there's two different things going on. I, I, um, you know, Popper's falsification uh, is true in some instances. That's kind of formally what the scientific method is Insisting you do test your hypothesis, try to falsify it. If you don't, somebody else will. Replication crisis was largely driven uh, by people failing to try to falsify their own hypotheses, and then other people did, or failed to replicate. Is a form of you know falsification of a test. Uh, that's that is formally how the scientific method works. Informally, scientists generally don't try to falsify their hypotheses. They try to find more evidence to pile up in favor of the hypothesis. So it's more Bayesian. I think the way the mind works is what drives scientists when they're working in a Bayesian way. That is to say, in in Bayesian reasoning, we want to apply some probability of something being true or false, somewhere between 0 and 100, or let's say between 1 and 99. So in Bayesian reasoning, there's something called Cromwell's rule. Oliver Cromwell, who famously said, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, you might be mistaken. Um, and so Cromwell's rule in Bayesian reasoning is you never apply a zero or a one. That is, it's 100% false or it's 100% true, because nothing is 100% false or 100% true. Anything could be true. Uh, so but But not just anything I- I- in between. It might be a 1% probability of being true or a 99% probability of being true. Those are very different. And so the way scientists work is that they really just try to pile up more and more evidence to nudge the the Bayesian probability higher and higher, the credence that is in the jargon, uh, to getting other people to accept their theory and and so forth. Now, so we have both of those, both uh, Popperian falsification and Bayesian reasoning going on Mm -hmm. in science. And, and, and in our own minds as well, just the way the mind works. There's even theories about how uh, in, in neuroscience, how neuron, neural nets uh, pile up evidence for something to, to make a connection, to actually grow a new neural synaptic connections and so on in a Bayesian way. That is, the more impulses that are coming in, the stronger the synaptic connections become and, and you you know have stronger memories and, and so forth and that's a in in kind of a bayesian way. So I think there's a lot there and and I really like the bayesian method. I've been doing this for a long time because mm. it it gets people off this binary way of thinking, you know, that your claim is either true or false. Yeah. And if somebody, you know, thinks that it might be true, then they they don't want to accept your your challenge that it's false. So if you just say, well, you might be right. I mean, it's possible. Um, I'm just not sure, you know, like what probability would you put on your belief? And most people, they've never really thought of it like that. You know, I believe Jesus, you know, died on the cross and was resurrected and so on. Okay. You know, and if I say, well, I, I don't believe it, it's false, you know, and then, well, it's like, well, this is my faith. So instead of saying, you know, it's, it's a bunch of baloney and you should stop believing it. How about like, you know, it's possible. It's not impossible. It could be. But, you know, what? let's put a probability on it. What do you think the odds are of somebody who's actually really dead and then for three days, you know, in a cave somewhere, and then they really come back to life? Uh, I mean, we've heard stories about this, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, most people are skeptical of most of these stories throughout history. But for some reason, this one stuck. So maybe this is the one. You know, what are the odds of this happening? Well, how many people have ever lived? You know, before us, about 100 billion people have lived and died. Not one of them has come back from the dead, or maybe one, (laughs) maybe. So it's, you know, one in 100 billion. Let's put that number on it, okay? Now, is the evidence for this proportional to 100 billion to one against? And the answer is no. It's not very good evidence at all. It's all testimony, and it's not even very good testimony. Because eyewitness testimony is not a reliable uh, means of of knowledge that is justified true belief. Justifying your belief as being true based on anecdotes alone is not enough. Just take the recent UAP business—you know that it's it's mostly, almost entirely, a series of stories of people that says they say they know somebody who says they saw something, right. or at best you get these grainy videos or these blurry photographs that people can't quite make out you know that's just not enough in science i mean it might be but you know it's you got to do better than that you know and so we hear these stories in the congressional hearings uh, last month um of you know well we we actually i know somebody who knows somebody that saw the spaceships and the alien bodies okay show it to us oh well we can't it's classified okay well why should I believe you? Oh, this guy is trustworthy. He's a general or he's a captain or he's a police officer or he's a teacher or he's the mayor or the governor. You know, then they start credentialing the the eyewitness to make the testimony more valid. But that doesn't really help at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's like the analogy I make is like the Chinese spy balloon. Mm. Um, you know, what? what were the credentials of the pilot that shot it down? Who knows who who cares it doesn't matter we all saw the chinese bible there it is <laughs> end of story so you know if you want to know what it would take to convince me that the uaps really represent either aliens or some russian or chinese technology just show it to us mm. you know we'll all believe it everybody believes the chinese bible in the story there's there's yep. no skeptics about that you know or and so on and that, that's what it would take so you know proportionally you got to have a lot of evidence and something like the resurrection of Jesus just does not rise to that level of evidentiary standards. It just doesn't. Now, if you want to say, well, I don't care about that. I it's my faith. You know, I, I'm a Catholic and I believe that Jesus died for our sins, and that's that's the story. And yeah, I'm not trying to prove it. Then then really I, my answer is okay. Then there's nowhere to go really from there.
2: Yes.
1: Um, and, and you know, it's, in a way it's in a different realm of truth. You know, what you and I are talking about are empirical truths, truths we can actually get at with some evidence or test or something. But if you just say, I don't really don't know, uh, I just believe it. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Then that's in in kind of a different realm, more like art or music or love or something like this, you know, like, you know, why do you like Michelangelo's statue of David or this particular piece of music, you know, a, a Bach concerto or something, and often it's like, I don't know. I just think it's beautiful. It moves my soul or something like that. Okay. You know, the, uh, it, and you don't have to prove it, right? That's just a, a subjective personal belief about something that, you know, really science doesn't have much to say about that. Uh, and and so I think religious claims are more in
0: that realm. Mm. I often say that, uh, I think it was Raymond Tallis. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but at some point he, when I asked him about his views on, on God or anything in, in terms of the nature of reality, he said something quite beautiful that I often use today. He said, I'm ontologically agnostic, but epistemologically, mm. I can tell you that I don't think it's true. And and that's sort of how I label myself. And in other words, I say I'm 99% atheist, but I'm 100% agnostic. I don't really know or what's happening here, but I can tell you that from what I've gathered about the nature of reality, I don't think this is a plausible explanation. And often I get slack from, from both sides. I mean, merely saying that I've got that, 99% atheism, I get a lot of slack. And then also just giving that leeway to that 1%, you get this hard scientists who fundamentally don't believe um, that there is a de- deist or theist who also come at me. Oh, and I'm talking about friends, family, can be anyone. Do you think that that, that non binary approach of actually giving them the, the room that they deserve um, also creates a bit of a chaos, um, a chaotic environment in terms of the debate?
1: Well, it, no, it opens up the possibility that you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, and that is true. You could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that's the same answer I I give. Who was it that you were quoting? Uh, it's Raymond, Raymond
0: Alice. Is mm. a neuroscientist uh, based in England.
1: Okay, I don't I don't know his work. But that that's my answer too. Is you know, ontologically speaking, that is on the nature of reality. I don't know yeah. if there's a god or not, and I'm not even sure it's knowable. Yeah. In some again, in this empirical truth realm, you know, is there some experiment we're going to run? Uh, you know, if we, if we continue to explore the universe for the next 100,000 years, will we encounter God? You know, well, what if we encountered an extraterrestrial intelligence so far advanced that they can create life forms, they can structure DNA, make cells, create complex life, they can um, uh, geoengineer planets to become habitable. Uh, they can create um, new solar systems by you know causing uh, black hole, you know causing I don't know dust clouds to coalesce into stars or causing stars to collapse into black holes and create new universes. You know this is all pie in the sky sci-fi, but 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 it you know science fiction writers have people like Arthur C. Clarke and mm-hmm. Isaac Asimov and others have have speculated how this could be done. Yes. Well, if it um, you know a Dyson sphere, for example, there's just massive solar panels around a star to capture most of the energy, and now there are astronomers uh, looking for remnants of a Dyson sphere out there, uh, and they've found some tantalizing hints, but nothing quite convincing yet. But what would you call? Uh, an entity that could do things like that create life geoengineer planets create whole universes well that's what God does right <laughs> that's the very definition of God that you know the entity that created all this well how would you know if you encountered an alien that it wasn't God or you know they're one and the same they're indistinguishable and so that I, that's what I call Shermer's last law <laughs> any sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence or far future human I added. Uh, would be indistinguishable from God, which I got, of course, from Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That, that, to me, puts religion and the claim of God's existence in a different realm, because most believers in God, that's not what they're thinking. They're not thinking, oh, this is some super-advanced extraterrestrial intelligence. No, they think it's something, an entity outside of space and time. It's not a physical you know, corporeal being that's just really smart. You know, most Christians, especially and Jews and, and Muslims. Um, so that accounts for what six six to the eight billion people on earth. You know, they believe that this is something out of space and time. And that a miracle happened. This this entity, this non-corporeal entity reached in to our world to stir the particles for whatever they think happened, you know, the creation of life or creation of complex life or creation of dna or morality or whatever um you know so there i just don't know how you could test that so i i'm i just say look i don't know there could be a god if if you know when i close my eyes for the last time here on this earth and i wake up and there i am in this other realm and there's god and it's like oh my god <laughs> i would probably say something like that oh my god i thought this was all bullshit oh no <laughs> now what <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually not worried about that I joke about it, but I'm actually not worried about it because if, if God really is all powerful, all knowing and all loving, you know, how can he punish me for, you know, just trying to understand the world? That's the, he gave me this brain. This is what the brain does. It, it doubts things and that's got to be okay and uh anyway so that's that's uh, now but so that like you ontologically speaking that's pure intellectual i don't walk around the world just like that i walk around the world assuming well there's probably no god in that kind of basic way 99 99.9 percent probably no god yeah but you know of course I, I could be wrong but you know just in terms of leading my life from day to day i just i don't think about it i don't go to church i don't you know anything like that
0: mm. and and it's it's often interesting because you see the evolution of the way certain religions form and, and and it's almost inescapable to to apply sort of human or anthropomorphize this, or anthropomorphize this whatever deity or, or, or being that they picture. It's always got something to do with our sort of existence. And yet when we think about some sort of an extraterrestrial intelligence, it will have almost nothing to do with what we are. Um, if you think about it from a perspective of, okay, natural selection on on earth focused and honed its craft in a specific way, because of the environment we're in, and no two environments ever sh- display that sort of a similarity, unless I mean, odds statistically, it could would pop. It might be possible, actually. <laughs> um, do you think? Well, I that- yeah, I I, yeah,
1: I, I agree with you. I, what I agree with you. Whatever the aliens are going to be like, they're not going to be like us. Yeah. I mean, the chances of them being bipedal primates, hmm. uh, you know, with a big bulbous head and and almond shaped eyes and a nose, with two holes and two ears and you know, forelimbs, limbs, fingers. I mean, this this is a, a very unique anatomical design that comes from the uh, tetrapod forelimb, for example, with our, our 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 limbs. You know, that dates back hundreds of millions of years to the first fish that crawled out of the sea. Um, the tetrapod forelimb it's called, uh, and the and the overall you know symmetrical body plan and all that all that comes from you know a gazillion contingent evolutionary steps from natural selection over eons of time, Mm. the chances of all that happening on some other planet in exactly the same pattern to end up with something very close to us is, you know, almost nil. It's just not going to happen. Even with convergent evolution, you know, on other planets with atmospheres and gravity and so on something like ours, oceans, you're going to get something like fish in the water and birds in the air because Anatomically, you have to have structures that can deal with the medium they're pushing their way through. So if you're if you want to fly, you have to have certain anatomical structures that are able to do that. They're aerodynamically sound. They're super lightweight. You know, in fish you have to have that kind of fusiform body that can push through a dense medium. You know, that kind of thing. If you're on land, you got to have something like eyes to see and ears to hear and so on. But if you just look around the experiments that natural selection has run on Earth the, you know, hundreds of millions of species, you know, probably in the billions, you know, how many times is the plan like ours it happened? Well, really, just one lineage. And, you know, several hundred thousand years ago, there were maybe half a dozen bipedal primates like us. and you know, we We're the last one standing. We almost didn't make it. You know, they talk about maybe 100,000 years ago, the entire world population of humans was less than 10,000. Some people say even less than 1,000. I mean, we could have easily gone extinct. Uh, Neanderthals lasted hundreds of thousands of years in Europe before Homo sapiens arrived. And they had tools and art and something like art, I guess, maybe not quite like Homo sapien art, but probably they had language and so on. And they never developed you know, technologies like ours. I mean, there there's no progress in evolution. Like it's moving toward being a sentient, conscious, intelligent species capable of space flight eventually and, and so on. You know, that that's just very unlikely. So my answer to the Fermi question, where is everybody? Is that you can get all the way up to from from bacteria to big brains the size of Neanderthals and never make the next step. Because they probably they were not going they weren't heading toward anything. They weren't becoming like us. They weren't becoming anything. They were just well adapted to do exactly what they did. So you could get all the you could get a planet to get all the way up to a Neanderthal level of intelligence and never have radio communication and, and telescopes and spaceships and things like that. And so I just think the chances of this happening anywhere else is not zero. Um, it, it's but it's low. And the only reason why I'm willing to put a very high number on the likelihood of there being extraterrestrial intelligence is somewhere in the cosmos, is simply because of the numbers are so, so huge, you know, hundreds of billions of galaxies, each of which has hundreds of billions of stars, each of which has planets, we now know. And so just by the sheer numbers, you're bound to get quite a few, a huge number that have the right size planet at the right distance from the star. You know, in a fairly um, non-elliptical orbit, so it's not too, you know too hot and too cold, uh, with the right atmosphere, and on and on and on. All the things in the Drake equation you got to get right. The chance of that happening, when you have the say almost a trillion galaxies, each of which has say hundred billion stars, and so on, and so on, it's going to be a very high number. But the chances of them finding us or us finding them is very, very slim. You know, it's mostly empty space. The analogy I was taught in when I took astronomy was: imagine our sun uh, the size of an orange in LA. You know, I'm in Southern California. The nearest star would be an orange in Chicago. You know, it's it's just nothing. It's mostly just empty space, unfathomable. So the (laughs) chance it's truly unfathomable. You know, the the Voyager spacecraft is you know hauling ass at seventy thousand miles an hour. If it were going to the nearest star, which it isn't. Uh, it would still take, I don't know, it was like 80,000 years to get there. I mean, it's just the chances of them. find. And then not only do they find us, you know, they, they somehow keep crashing in the New Mexico desert <laughs> or wherever. And they and they're not wiped out They're You know, they're still alive. And it turns out they're bipedal primates that somehow understand us and want to have sex with us and and probe us and, uh, you know, take uh, the parts of uh, cattle. You know, I mean, come on. Really, it's just, it's, the story is just literally unbelievable.
0: Um, I'm, I'm just thinking about you. I mean, you've got people like Arthur C. Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov as like heroes. Um, have you ever read, I think there was a short story that Isaac Asimov wrote, Hero wrote 2. Um, something was, I think it was in the beginning and, and at the end. I'm not sure. Have you read those short stories? Before? No, I don't know those. I will try and get the actual name of those and send it to you, because I think you'll love it. It's, 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 it's such an amazing short story. So basically, uh, I can't remember the first one, but the second one, he talks about almost a teleological process of how this universe is sort of untwining forward. And, and artificial intelligence plays a huge role within that. But to a point where it becomes so complex that we have no frame of reference as to what this thing is doing, um, not at all. And he persistently asks, it asks itself, what is the meaning of the universe or what is the meaning of life? And this thing just continuously evolves to a point where it never really gets that answer, Um, but Mm -hmm. yet at the same time takes over the entire universe. So it's a, it's a pretty neat story uh, with that in mind. Do you think there's some sort of teleology occurring here, even if it's got nothing to do with religion? Uh yeah
1: okay let's explore that for a second but first let me make a note that if we did encounter extraterrestrial intelligences that is not my idea but um, it's not likely to be biological mm. you know you hear this David Grush talking about you know non-human biologics so I I posted a a tweet the other day of a of a flower <laughs> a plant I mean <laughs> uh, it was a bird a bird bird of, bird of paradise uh, plant. Uh, going here it is it's non-human biologic (laughs) they're all over the place (laughs) my dog is a non-human biologic anyway uh, but a lot of people like my my friend and colleague Avi Loeb at Harvard who's running the Galileo project you know he thinks it's much more likely we would uh, encounter an AI uh, just because it's so much cheaper uh, to build a small computer than send a biologic You know, through space, it's you know, it's as we know from just trying to get humans to the moon and now to Mars. You know, it's just massively expensive to move something that big and have to accommodate you know an atmosphere and waste disposal and food and all that. You know, computers don't need any of that. They can operate at cold temperatures without air, and they don't need food, and they just need some energy, and you just you can power them with you know nuclear uh, cells and so on. Uh, So you know, if if that's the way we're going. Uh, robotic spacecraft that are getting smaller and smaller, then that's probably what aliens would do. So if we found something, it would probably be technological, which is what Avi was trying to do with uh, scraping the bottom of the ocean floor in uh, in the ocean near Papua New Guinea this summer. to Try to find the remnants of this interstellar, probably interstellar meteor that crashed there. Maybe the debris is of, of a material that is not natural anyway we'll we'll see the results of that soon enough probably not but uh, but that's the idea okay teleological um you know th- there are there, there's nothing directional about evolution from the top down uh that is obvious mm. you know uh, th- there's there's a bias in Western culture to see progress everywhere and, and a lot of times there really is progress and but even in like paleoanthropology you'll you'll see descriptions of like a neanderthal jaw or a or a homo erectus um skull or something like that that it's you know it's it's almost human or it's becoming human or it's like you know it's almost like ours our molar it's almost like a human molar t- as if this organism is striving to become us like mm. oh if i just keep working at it you know maybe i'll become a homo sapiens no there's nothing like that in evolution most species are doing just fine the way they are. They don't need to change constantly, much less in a particular direction. It would only be on the grandest of scales where, you know, if there were certain environmental changes that drove species to, say, develop larger brains like we did. But even that, you know, we, we're we not quite sure. You know, there's different theories about this. Why do we have such big brains? Why do we have the capacity for... Uh, language and, and symbolic communication, mathematical reasoning, aesthetic appreciation, you know, music, art, literature. Why do we have all these things? No other species has them, and they do just fine. You don't need any of that. This was Alfred Russell Wallace's argument uh, later in his life against Darwin. That He kind of broke with Darwin on this. Wallace felt like there's some directionality behind all this because natural selection would never bother creating a brain the size of ours with all these capacities that are not needed for survival if, if you just need to survive and get your genes to the next generation you don't need to be able to do calculus and all this other stuff we can do now darwin and others you know they thought that's too what we now call hyper selectionism that is a lot of things in evolution happen by accident uh, or they had some other purpose and they got co-opted for a new purpose in a later generation like wings you know this is this is called the incipient stage problem w- you know what good is half a wing you know it's not aerodynamically sound you can't fly with a little nub sticking out of the side of your body what, what why would evolution drive the selection of these structures to eventually become aerodynamically sound there must be directionality to it and the answer evolutionists give is no it was not a poorly designed wing it was a well designed something else <laughs> you know, solar, a solar collector or, a, you know, heat dispersal mechanism or something like this. And
2: it's different brain. theory. Mm.
1: Yeah, there's something, you know, there's different theories about this. And even with things like mathematical reasoning and aesthetic appreciation, music, art, literature, dance, and so on, um, that maybe it's a sexual selection. This was Darwin's second theory in The Descent of Man, <laughs> uh, that sexual selection, that is, um, these are characteristics that appeal to mates And therefore, they have value for getting your genes in the next generation through that avenue, not just escaping prey or being camouflaged or anything like that. Anyway, so but my my point is that we don't have a definitive answer to that question. Why do we have such big brains that are able to do all this stuff? Um, If you stick strictly to the natural selection model, you end up like Wallace going, there's got to be something else out there pulling us toward it. Or giving us a push in this direction, and most evolutionary theorists don't think that at all. They think, no, no, no it's just there's something else going on here, and um, and so you get this. I mentioned convergent evolution. You know, the expert on this is um, Simon Conway Morris. Um, by the way, he uh, uh, his book on this was called Life Solution, and he makes the point uh, that I mentioned that you know if you have a planet where there's you know, certain atmosphere, density of the water, density of the air. You Just by physics alone, you're going to end up with body types and limbs that are of a certain nature because that's what works mm. by physics. <laughs> and uh, so, so he argued you're going to end up with something like uh, a head with sensory apparatus on one end and a waste disposal system at the other end and limbs to move around the land or wings to fly, fins to swim and so on. Um, that you might end up with organisms that are not terribly different from what we see on earth. But my rebuttal to that is just look around earth. I mean, look at an octopus or just, you know, just this incredible diversity of organisms where there's not a lot of convergence there in any big picture development. Now here I'll I'll give a plug for um, uh, the book, Non-Zero, William um, uh, uh, Wright, Sorry, Robert Wright's book, which I really love. That book, and you know, he he does postulate a kind of directionality in a game theory analysis. That in the long run, if all organisms are selfish and just hoard resources and 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 are uh, violent and so on, that will be selected against in the long run. They could they could you know free riders and cheaters and so on can get away with stuff for a while but eventually the group can't survive like that so there's a pressure to domesticate yourself stop being so violent be more pro-social cooperative altruistic ultimately this ends up with you know love and connectedness and bondedness between species if you're a mammal right anyway he takes a big picture and shows how that may even apply to the development of civilizations and so on Uh, most people don't go as far as as, as Bob Wright does on that, but but it's not a completely crazy idea. Hmm. Ultimately, in other words, if there are other extraterrestrials out there or God, you know, it it might be something like us that are pro-social, cooperative, and so on. Therefore, we don't have to worry about contacting the aliens. They're not going to enslave us, eat us, <laughs> whatever. They're <laughs> not. They're not going to be. You can't be evil and colonialists and enslavers and achieve. Uh, extra, achieve space flight and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you need more cooperation. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling here, but that, it, you know, that, that's the idea. It, it could happen. There could be some directionality to it, but I don't go as far as, say, Bob Ryder or his predecessor, T.L.R. Deschardins, with his new sphere, where, you know, the, the planet is becoming conscious, and, you know, he's been kind of resurrected because of the internet. Maybe the internet is our global brain, mm. and so on. Yeah, but there's nothing... There's nothing inevitable about this. You know, it it took capitalism to develop technologies and companies that uh, uh, profit by doing this. That's a unique, you know, political economic system that drives the development of this technology. Nothing inevitable about that. And I'm not even sure what it would mean to say the Internet is now conscious
2: Hmm.
1: or sentient. You know, these are just devices. These are, you know, you have these massive warehouses of servers you know the the cloud. People talk about the cloud as if it's this airy fairy like quantum field out there, and and you know all of our information is floating around out there. That that's not what the cloud is. <laughs> these are, you still got to have the physical hardware somewhere <laughs> to store all this stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah, so.
0: it's it's true. I think the more technology gets more and more advanced, we we tend to misinterpret what it actually is at some point. I mean, when we used to see it back in the day with all these massive um, hardware computers that's when people could tell, okay, this is very mechanical, but now it slowly blurs that line. The more we don't see what's really happening, the fact that everything's transmitted via radio waves, et cetera, and I think that's another thing. I mean, for all we know, another type of intelligence could use could be light, it could be anything. It could, it could be so completely, absurdly different from what we what we're expecting that we'll have no access to this sort of information. Something I find quite fascinating, though, is when people talk about, I mean, the, we, we, we're discussing evolution and how natural selection plays a pivotal role in. And crafting these organisms so non-directionally. Um, but a lot of people still don't really, even when they talk about evolution and Darwinian natural selection, they still have the sort of Lamarckian view of what this is. And I think that tends mm. to blur the reality. What does do any of your research or work has to say about that? Hmm.
1: Well, interestingly, yeah. So a, a Lamarckian view of evolution, that is, you know, you can kind of will things to change or, uh, you know, the giraffe stretches its neck and the Baby giraffes have longer necks. Okay, that doesn't work. Now, the bodybuilders don't have children with bigger muscles, <laughs> right? Or the Jewish rite of circumcision for thousands of years, you know, they've been cutting off the foreskin of little babies, and babies are still born with foreskins, even in Jewish families. <laughs> so it doesn't change the germline at all. But that is our intuition, you know, and we know this from research um, by cognitive psychologists um, like, uh Let's see, I think I have his forthcoming book here. Oh, anyway, it escapes me at the moment. Uh, the title of his book is, but um, uh, the idea is: is if you ask people if they accept the theory of evolution, you know, most most students say, "Yeah, of course." Describe it. How does it work? And most people don't know how it works. Mm. Um, they, you know, they invoke something like a Lamarckian explanation. So when they're saying they believe in evolution, they're really just kind of publicly signaling, I trust the science. You know, I guess those scientists know what they're doing. They usually get it right. So everyone seems to think evolution's true. So yeah, okay, I accept it. Mm. <laughs> uh, De, uh, uh Stuhlman, Andrew Stuhlman is, is is he's a psychologist at uh Occidental College, Andrew Stuhlman. And this was part of his research, you know. What what you know, what do people understand about evolution? And they don't, they really don't understand it. You know, that kind of population genetics thinking you know it's just counterintuitive um and uh, and it turns out this is true for most things if you want to broaden the uh the model a little bit you know if you ask people you know what, what their opinion is on NAFTA the North American Free Trade Agreement you know people go oh yeah I, I accept it or no I'm against it okay what is it uh Oh, it's that thing, you know, with the, I don't even know what countries it is, but I'm against it. You know, they're, they're mostly publicly signaling what their party says about it or their candidate or, you know, whatever the latest trend is in their tribe to to accept it or reject it. And, and that turns out to be true across the board. I mean, most people don't understand most things. And, and how could you? I mean, most of these issues are complex and who has time? Most of us are just trying to lead our lives. So... You know, much of what we accept as true or we don't accept it as true is based on the, the, what the people around us think. You yeah. know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, pull the audience to find out what's true. And most of the time that that's a reasonable way of understanding nature and reality is, you know, what 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 are other people doing? Yeah. You know, and if they're doing something, if they're running away from something, uh, maybe I better run away, too, just in case because they know something I don't know. And usually that works So you know, a lot of these classic psych experiments, it's kind of guerrilla theater from the 1960s and 70s, where we're going to set up a thing in the elevator where everybody faces backwards. Yeah. And then, the you know, everybody's a shill for the experiment. Let's see what happens when the person gets on the elevator. It's like a can of camera. Ha ha ha. You know they all conform to the crowd this is so dumb look how stupid they are and conforming you know we the pumping smoke in the room and everybody in the room is a shill except the one guy and he's sitting there filling out his form going "Eh." well no one else is doing anything i guess i'll just sit here like an idiot well but but in a way you know social proof is a is a generally reliable method because if mm. there really was smoke coming in the room, there really was a fire in the building, people wouldn't just be sitting there filling out a form because yeah. the experimenter told them to. They'd really get up and move. And then they, and the subject would go, yeah, I'm out of here too. So it's not stupid. Mm. <laughs> We're not irrational in that sense. It's, it's um,
0: a well-adaptive feature of ours.
1: Yes, and for the most part, it usually works. Mm. It, it's, it's good enough for understanding the world.
0: And I think, so one of the great ways to try and avoid this it will easily being easily influenced by others and by allowing certain game th- theories to almost absorb your entire life is to do what you call skepticism 101. And I think I mean you teach the literally teach this as a course at university. How can we better think about concepts in general? And and I think it's important for the listeners and viewers to understand exactly what you're doing there because people are just assuming this is just okay maintaining that cynicism you discussed earlier. But it's not. You're actually teaching them tools and tricks to think. It's almost like intuition pumps that Daniel Denner talks about but mm-hmm. for, for, for everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm trying to teach my students how to think about things, mm-hmm. not just what to think, because I don't know what's going to come down the pike 10 years from now that they encounter in the news. And how should they think about it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they don't know. But but after they take my course, they'll think, oh, yeah, right. Uh, I should be skeptical until the evidence is <laughs> Strong. I should apportion my beliefs to the power of the evidence. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know, watch out for anomaly hunting and the file drawer problem, where um, you know all the negative results get filed away, mm-hmm. and we only see the published positive results. You know, the counterfactuals. What else would have to be true if this was true? And let's run some counterfactual experiments. Just things like that. So I have fifteen weeks of these um different tools that we go through and you know it's just it's just a useful way of how to think about the world um steve pinker has a similar course at harvard called rationality his book is called rationality and same kind of thing you know statistical uh, theory signal detection theory bayesian reasoning logic all the logical fallacies cognitive biases and all these things are are tools that are handy to have and they, they have, for the most part, trickled down, I think, to the general population. You'll hear people talking about their priors. Oh, I'm going to adjust my priors and change my credence. Whoa, are you? <laughs> you know, Do you know the mathematics behind that? Most people don't. I even have to look it up. Like, what was the formula again? Okay, I got a lecture on this tomorrow. I better bone up on what that Bayesian equation was again. And so on. Uh, but the, But the general idea... You know, don't assign a zero or or a one; just something in between one and ninety nine, uh, and, and 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 just adjust your beliefs up or down based on new evidence that comes in. So you know, people are I get hammered on social media for you know why are you so skeptical of these UAPs? Haven't you heard those stories? They're incredible stories. Like, well, first of all, I've been doing this for thirty years, and I've heard these every year for thirty years, and not once have they ever come true. Mm. And the evidence is no better than it ever was. It's the same old blurry videos and grainy photographs and stories about things in the sky, you know, you got to do better than that. I'm willing to, you know, change my mind. You know, if Hmm. Marco Rubio gets into one of those warehouses where the spacecraft and the alien non-human biologics are located and he comes out and goes, Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. We have the aliens here. It is. And he shows his pictures and here's the video. And, Takes the camera crew in there. Look, here they are. We, we you know, we the government is going to admit we we have these. Mm. Okay, I I would accept that in the same way I did the Chinese spy balloon. I never saw the Chinese spy balloon myself. It didn't fly over to Southern California, uh, but I accept that you know the media, and the military, and the Pentagon and the president and you know everybody that covered that story, they got it right. Even though I didn't see it personally myself, and you know, so that that's what it would take.
0: Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned briefly that I mean, we've got these psychological tools, like these biases we can practice and train on those. Um, philosophical ones like logical fallacies, we can understand those. I'm curious to know if uh, – this is probably a difficult question to answer, but uh, do you think you'd be able to give us like a top five logical fallacies to avoid and a top five cognitive biases to to sort of also embrace or and or? Oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest mother of all cognitive biases is the – the, um, Motivated reasoning, it's called. That is, we're motivated to reason our way toward um, being right Mm -hmm. uh, rather than finding out what's true. So this is based on a theory um, uh, by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. This is by no means universally accepted, but um, there's kind of two schools of thought on this. Why did we evolve the capacity to reason and use rationality and so on? I mentioned tracking and hunting and so on. You know, Is it that we want a veridical perception apparatus and system where the goal of our sensory apparatus and reasoning about the information that comes in is to better understand reality the way it really is? Or is it something else, which is what Mercier and Sperber argue, which is that we really evolved the capacity of reason to win arguments, to be right, for our group, our tribe, uh, to be correct and to support that through reason and arguments and evidence and so on. And so the confirmation bias, you look for confirming evidence for what you believe and you disregard the disconfirming evidence or you rationalize away, spin doctor the negative evidence or whatever against your hypothesis in order to win, to, to be right. And that's their argument. And I think there's something to both sides. Yeah. Clearly, we have the capacity to understand the nature of reality reasonably well, and I know this because, you know, you and I can both look at this thing and go, yeah, it's round, I can feel it, and you can see it, and you and I can agree, and we get some confirmation, maybe we ask a third person or a fourth person, you know, and we get corroboration on this, we could all be deluded, you know, but it's not likely, uh, and it's reasonable for me, apply the Copernican principle, I'm not special, that you're brain and sensory apparatus works the same as mine there's nothing special about me so if you say see, you see, see something and i see something and we agree on it it's probably the way it is you know the, then the counterexamples as well the bat you know the bat has a completely different sensory apparatus it uses you know this sonar system and so on and is it's, it's a, whatever this thing looks like to the brain of a bat it's probably very different from what you and i see hmm. that's true but if the bat is flying toward this object and it's bouncing sound waves off of it and picking them up, it's still going to avoid it. It's going to go around it. Why? Cause it's really there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so something like that, even though the icon in its brain is going to be different than the icon in your, my occipital lobe or the visual cortex or whatever uh, it's still really there, you know, and the, and, and the reason say camouflage works in nature is because there really are organisms that are dangerous and the other organisms that evolve um, systems to either look like it or to camouflage against it is because they really are there, <laughs> you know, so there really are predators and, and, and those colors really do matter and, and so forth. So uh, all, all, so all that, I guess my conclusion would be that we're able to reason rate relatively well to mm-hmm. understand the way the world really is. But not perfectly, so we're never going to be sure because of all the cognitive biases, you know, the hindsight bias. You know, after the fact, you reconstruct what happened and conclude that it had to happen that way. Confirmation bias, the my side bias. This would support uh, Mercier's argument um, that um, it, it, you know that our our side is right, our political party, our religion, whatever it is, our tribe, uh, and and but but knowing that you can just go, well, okay, I'm probably subject to the so there's a bias bias we can be <laughs> so there's there's bias training you train subjects on to do what you just asked me to do mm. okay, here's the top five things you should look out for okay, I got it I got it and the way it works is they become very good at seeing other people's biases yeah but they have a hard time seeing it in their own reasoning so the, that's called the bias bias so we got to get a bias 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 <laughs> to overcome the bias bias <laughs> right. Uh, And that's never going to happen 100%. So, you know, so then you have to develop tools of uh, of, sort of meta tools like, well, what's the overall goal here? And okay, I'm aware of my my side bias and the confirmation bias and my motivated reasoning. So therefore, I'm going to set as my goal. I just want to know what's actually true, not what my tribe thinks is true. I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm a Catholic or I'm a Jew or a Protestant or whatever. I'm going to just decide what's actually true. That's my goal. And and so with that, you can overcome uh, some of those biases. It it really does work. I mean, there's a reason for all those courses in logic and logical fallacies and all that stuff. Um, People can be trained around it. And the scientific method itself, you know, the way it's set up. You know, we got to have a blind, blinded condition so the subjects don't know which condition they're in because that could influence the outcome. Yeah, but the experimenter bias, experimenter bias. Okay, it's going to be double blind. The experimenter doesn't even know what uh, condition the subjects are in because, and so these are they use coded, um, the coded words or or sorry, (laughs) codes to mark the subjects, and you don't know which condition the subject is in when you're sitting there recording what they're doing or whatever so that you're not biased but you know but but somebody else could decode it and figure out who was in which group and then run the statistics on it, things like that the, you know randomized controlled trials you know uh, the reason for those is um because of all those problems mm. in in this in the uh you know cognitive biases and, and logical fallacies and so on built into the system so the randomized controlled trial again, you don't know which condition the subject is in, and they don't know if they're getting the placebo or the actual uh, drug, and, and so on. All that's done, then you run the experiment later, the statistics, and go, okay, it looks like this drug works, or it doesn't work, or whatever. And you know, all that took a long time to develop. I mean, really, even all the way up until 2010, when the replication crisis struck, and we discovered that probably half of all psych experiments and a good portion of medical research yeah. was not replicable. It probably should have never been published. How did it get published? Well, the p-hacking, for example, the p-value, the probability of it being due to chance rather than the effect you're looking at. It turns out you can manipulate the data in a way you throw out the extreme uh, values to you know make the, the, the numbers come out a certain way. Even unconsciously, uh, experimenters maybe do this. Yeah. And um, and so this kind of P hacking. And, you know, again, I mentioned the file drawer problem. You know, the experimenter runs nine experiments and one of them is statistically significant. So that's the one that gets published. But no one knows about the other eight that that failed the repl- that failed to uh, be statistically significant. That would be good to know. <laughs> so, you know, now there's these you know sites where you post ahead of time. Here are the experiments I'm going to run. Yes. Here's all nine of them. And I'm going to report the results of all nine right here. So everybody knows ahead of time what's going on, you know things like that. I mean, that's that's pretty recent. That's just you know thirteen years ago. uh, So you know, science is relatively new and stumbling along trying to figure out, you know, what are we getting wrong, and um, it's, you know, if I knew what our cultural biases were, I, I wouldn't be subject to them, but I don't know. I'm like the fish. We're all like the fish in the water. I don't even know that there's water. (laughs) If I knew I'd, you know, I wouldn't be subject to it. And, you know, So on that bigger picture of extraterrestrials or God or whatever. I mean, yes, reality could be completely different. You know, as as Avi Loeb likes to say, you know, 95% of the universe is unknown, you know, dark energy, dark matter. We don't even know what it is. It's like, okay, so maybe we should be humble, (laughs) epistemologically (laughs) uh, humble, Uh, humility, epistemological humility before the fact, just in case, you know, I don't want to be that guy in 1896 that said physics is pretty much done. Yeah, yeah, we got it all figured out, (laughs) right? And then along comes Einstein and quantum physics and relativity and like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) so I don't know. You know, five hundred years from now, we could all be thinking very differently in the same way that if you time travel back to Newton's time, you know, and you showed him general relativity and quantum physics, he'd be like, "What?" Mm. <laughs> you know, knowing and so New-
0: knowing Newton, he probably would figure it out at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, because he was smart enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: tell me, Michael, what what's your perception of the relationship between philosophy and science? Does science need philosophy, and vice versa? Oh
1: yeah, science. Science is really a branch of philosophy. Philosophy is this just a larger worldview of approaching the world using every tool that we have, one of which is science. Mm. So I don't, I don't make this distinction between science and philosophy. And you know, science progresses, and philosophy makes no progress. You no, this, you know, this is just the wrong way to think about it.
0: Mm. And, and mathematical realism.
1: Well there, yeah, okay. So that's you know different kinds of truths. We want to talk about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's certain, you know, mathematical truths in a you know, Euclidean geometry, you know, the sum of the angles of a triangle and so on and so forth. These are just true by you know, just by by mathematical reasoning. Or, you know, a a bachelor is an unmarried man. Okay, it's just that's the what the word yeah. means. <laughs> You know, th- those are those are different than the kind of stuff we've been talking about. where we don't know for sure. I do think you know is if you know does mathematics represent something that's really out there? I think for the most part, yes. I think that's right. I mean, what, whatever the aliens, if we encounter aliens, they will have surely figured out math because how else could they achieve the physics of spaceflight and so on. Uh, without figuring those things out no. but but of course they're going to call it something different they're gonna, mm. <laughs> they're not going to call it you know f equals ma or whatever mm. they're going to use some other symbols or something but you know the, the assumption this uniformitarian assumption is that physics in some other galaxy works the same way as it does here mm. or physics a billion years ago is the same as it is now it's possible that's not the case but you know, but but the assumption is a reasonable one to make and so, again, back to what the aliens might be like. Well, if they're on a planet like ours with a certain level of gravity and certain density of air and so on, they're going to have certain structures because that's just the physics of it. And assuming that physics works, gravity works the same way as it does here in some other galaxy, it's a reasonable assumption. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think mathematics maps onto reality. You know I don't know how far you want to go with that you know when someone like Max Tegmark I don't he's just b- beyond my cognitive capacity to understand what you know the yeah. u- entire universe is mathematical I don't even I'm sure I even know what that means <laughs> <I> mean, that's <laughs> you know, a you,
0: difficult concept to to grasp in general when you take certain fields of mathematics and then to say that it does it takes it to another level
1: I think so yeah I think metaphysically uh, so kind of locked into our concepts mm. Very much determines the way we think about things in that Wittgenstein way, you know, the concept as as it's defined. I think we end up in hitting an epistemological wall. Certain hard problems, like the hard problem of consciousness, Mm -hmm. the fact that we still don't have an answer. And I see Christoph, my friend Christoph Koch, had to pay David Chalmers Mm -hmm. uh, for their twenty five year bet.
0: (laughs) Very good. Rack of Wines, eh? Very
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I read that, yeah. Huh. <laughs> way to go, Christoph. Hmm. And, uh, okay. But I'm not sure it could ever be resolved in the same way of free will determinism. Hmm. It's like, what it, it, it may be a conceptual problem. The way it's just conceived, the way you're defining these words. You know, you end up with just this word salad of arguments that seem to get nowhere. You know, I yeah,
0: get my own podcast. I think so that's exactly what this um at, at some point that's how i frame this entire conversation so I, I told you via email that um a great way to apply your work to this would be we approach the basic concepts of this podcast so uh, mind body solution explores the nature of reality consciousness uh, free will morality mental health and more but i think it, the best way the overarching theme of this is obviously paying homage to the infamous mind body problem i mean how is it possible that this this psychological system can manifest, I mean, it comes from this biological being. And I've noticed on on, on the Michael Shermer show, I mean, you've interviewed many similar guests. I mean, you've got Donald Hoffman, Ogi Ogas, uh, Bernardo Castro, so many people that we've both spoken to. So I'm curious to know, at this point, let's start with consciousness, applying that skepticism to what these theories have to say. I mean, we've got hardcore materialists. Um, I consider myself one of them. But at this point, I mean, the hardcore part slowly fading away. And it's the more I'm, I'm talking to these guys, I'm seeing what they're trying to say from a philosophical, mathematical, or neuroscientific perspective. Oh, well, I wouldn't say neuroscientific because they go beyond that. But I'm still grounded in that materialist belief. How do you, when you chat to these guys, how do you feel? And what what, what comes to mind?
1: Well, the mind-body problem itself, just the way it's phrased, mm-hmm. is a kind of a dualistic assumption. Well, there's body, and then there's this other thing called mind. Well, you're using that word but you know it's just a word what does it mean Mm. you know it's to me it's just a word that describes what the brain is doing when it's doing something in the same way like that's you know when your brain dies where does the mind go it'd be like like asking when your heart stops beating where does the heartbeat go Mm. there is no heartbeat without the heart beating it's the word heartbeat just describes what the heart is doing or, or you, know, where, you know, the liver is doing cleaning your blood and the pancreas is doing that, whatever that is, <laughs> always forget. <laughs> um, you know, that's just a process of a physical system. And to me, this word mind has been elevated to something other than all these other processes. And I just don't think it should be. I think that's a mistake, mm. uh, a conceptual mistake. It's, it's, it's still that kind of intuitive dualism. You know, Paul Bloom writes about this, that, you know, we're natural born dualists. you know, children from the youngest age, you can test them, assume there's there's something else, you have the little puppet of the mouse and the puppet of the alligator and the alligator puppet munches the mouse alligator, you know, where is the mouse now? Oh, it's off in this other realm, and it's with its mommy and it's scared away. You know, children from a very young age think there's something, there's some essence, essentialism, there's an essence to the thing other than the body, the physical structure. And that seems to be infusing everything we talk about, all of our language. And so, you know, free will, like there's this mini me inside me, you know, and so on. It's hard to get around that. And, um, you know, I don't have the answer to the mind-body, but nobody does. I think it's a conceptual difficulty. But for me, there's no problem because physical systems act on physical systems. Mm. That's what they do. (laughs) And that's what we do when we're studying physical systems and how... You know one thing causes another thing so neurons firing cause other neurons to fire and neural networks are at work and they interact with other neural networks sometimes they're conflicting sometimes they're reinforcing you know whatever they build these models of the world and t- you know models on top of models on top of models that get more complex and at some point it feels like there's something else metaphysical going on i mean when we're just sitting here talking I hear the words coming out of my mouth, but I, I don't know. I can't sense any of the process going on in my brain. You don't detect your brain. It feels like there's thoughts floating around up there in, in some kind of quantum field or some airy fairy, you know, metaphysical field. But that that's not. We know that's not true. They're just neurons firing. You know, my Broca's area, you know, that generates speech, and this other area that you know generates the thoughts, and the you know, my fears and emotions bubble up from my amygdala. And my prefrontal cortex puts the brakes on by getting upset at you for asking me this question, so I won't yell at you. <laughs> Whatever. There's all this stuff going on, but I don't perceive any of it. It just feels like there's this stuff floating around up there. So to me, the mind-body. How does the how does the mind act on the body? It, 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 there is no mind. It's just how does the body act on the body? Well, it just does. That's what it does. <laughs> you know, uh, my brainstem sends these signals to my heart and lungs to beat and breathe. I don't have to think about it, thank God. <laughs> you know, and you, it happens when you're sleeping and so on. And when general anesthesia, you know, kicks in, they it alters these things, and they have to have s- systems set up to make so you keep breathing and your heart keeps pumping while you're getting surgery and all this stuff. It's it, it's all body. It's just the brain. The mind is just a word to describe what the brain does. That's my answer to the the problem.
0: they I mean, is it when when I try to check... Chat- about this to someone who has a fundamentally different view i tried to maintain that as we were discussing earlier that that relatively skeptical approach mentally but i think it's important to try and explore the idea so that we can also understand the philosophy behind it when you approached conversations with people like donald hoffman bernardo castro who have an idealist perspective i mean consciousness is fundamental the other day I spoke to Thomas Campbell, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, he also says, I mean, consciousness is fundamental. So this idealist perspective, when you approach these conversations grounded in a materialist perspective, how do you go about it?
1: Yeah, well, um, yeah, like with Deepak Chopra, who's, you know, I've known a long time now, He and he's of that bent that everything is consciousness. Consciousness is the ground of all being, as he says. Mm. <laughs> In the same way that you know Tillich said, God is the ground of all being. In a way, it's it's kind of a theological position to take that you know metaphysically there's something that underlies everything that we see and and measure and so on, and that underlying thing is what consciousness, God, whatever some metaphysical other thing. And okay, maybe you know I don't know. It seems like you get hit one of these epistemological walls where well how can we settle this issue is there some experiment we're going to run you know and and it it often to me seems like it comes down to some like a leap of faith like this is my metaphysical presumption this is where i'm going to start okay Mm -hmm. just put that up front so we know that and from that you can derive all sorts of things but if you start with some other uh grounding point then you're not going to end up with those assumptions Mm. Um, this is why i like that survey chalmers did back in 2009 it's been replicated since then by somebody else you know they just surveyed it was something like 3600 professors and graduate students in philosophy on you know like, like like the top 20 problems in philosophy you know what is your position like free will and determinism and so on and the fact that they're you know, there's very little consensus on most of these hard problems. You know, they they don't agree with each other. And to me, this would be like surveying astronomers and cosmologists. You know, is it the Big Bang theory or the steady state theory that explains the cosmos? Well, all, you know, 99% of them say, well, Big Bang has won out over the steady state because of all this evidence that's accumulated since the 1950s. But but if it was still 50-50 or, you know, some <laughs> something like it, we, we don't know. And I'd say, OK, maybe there's and and it was a, instead of a 50 year old problem, it was a thousand year old problem. I would think, OK, you guys are you're going about this the wrong way. There's something else wrong with the way you're asking the question, because at some point, if there's a way to get an answer, well, then you should be able to run some experiments and figure out which is the likeliest one to be true. Now, there's still Big Bang skeptics, I know, but not many. <laughs> and so you get this consensus and the fact that th- there doesn't seem to be as much consensus in philosophy as there is in science it tells me there there's some other thing going on there yeah. and again i think i think it's that metaphysical starting point i'm going to start where at, at the assumption everything is conscious you know like like something like panpsychism or something like that. okay then you're going to end up somewhere different
0: that's true i think i think that that also indicates the limits within science because philosophy does allow you to at least semantically or linguistically explore concepts that go beyond science um, and I think that's the reason why, because some philosophers of mind who have these different perspective from our own, I mean, they formulate some well grounded philosophical arguments to a point Ooh. where it becomes very difficult to really find flaws within it. And in essence, its explanatory power slightly increases from a philosophical perspective and not from a scientific perspective. And I find that quite interesting and fascinating. And that's why this mind-body problem is, it really is, well, a hard problem at least. It's quite a difficult one to answer.
1: Yeah. And okay. So what's wrong with that line of reasoning where I'm going to just do a pure thought experiment. If I'm going to start here and if this is true, then this, then this, and if, then, if, then, and 20 steps later, you end up at where you're at. Mm. Okay. Did you look out the window to see if any of that is true? (laughs) Uh, I mean, if you're just in your head the entire time, there's nothing wrong with that. Philosophy is a perfectly reasonable way of reasoning. But it would be nice if you could somehow test it. Like, what is nature actually like? You know, so that like uh, deepak's thing. You know, everything is con- consciousness is pervasive in the universe. And well, so they said. Well, what about you know when somebody gets a stroke? That area, that form of consciousness, that area of the mind, the mind itself just is gone. You know, they can't speak anymore. The memories are gone. You know, this my thought experiment for deepak was. You know, where does Aunt Millie's mind go? When her brain dies of Alzheimer's. Mm. And Deepak's answer, I guess this is the idealist position, well, it just goes to where it returns to where it started, it goes back into the ether, or whatever. And that Aunt Millie's brain was just a temporary instantiation of her consciousness that, that exists somewhere else. Mm. Well, where is that? And then the analogy: well, the brain is like a radio receiver, and consciousness is like the radio waves, you know. So here we are in, in my office here in Santa Barbara. Uh, we have radio stations. If I had a radio here, I could tune it in. I don't have a radio in my office. There's one in my car. Uh, but if I could tune it in here, I could hear it, but I don't have one here. So uh, we don't detect the radio signals, but they're here. Mm. Okay. So my answer to that is, okay, but we know where the radio stations are. You can go there. You can see the guy in the booth talking to the microphone, and then the transmitters are sending it out, and they go to the the towers at the top of the hill here, and they broadcast out to the world and so on. I could see the apparatus. Where's the equivalent of that for universal consciousness? You know, what is, is there some consciousness creating mechanism somewhere in the universe where all this stuff comes from? And the answer appears to be no, it's just pervasive everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, then how do you know it's true? I mean, if there's no way to falsify it, to test it, to go let's go look, then then again you're just saying this is my metaphysical starting point and Then to me, it sounds like a leap of faith. I'm just going to start here. Mm. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because it it, it does become quite difficult, especially if you are relying on this empirical evidence for us to to fully grasp those concepts, because we need some sort of empirical reality to test this. And also, I think then at that point, it would also lack some sort of practical significance, which I think then makes it less useful from a scientific perspective. But then I've, I've also, again, with this, I've noticed philosophical arguments where they're able to give you the practical significance and makes it a potential. Yeah, that's
1: always to me. It's always a good question: w- mm-hmm. Why does this matter? What difference does it make?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you, you, I listened to your conversation with uh, Noam Chomsky. I thought it was great. He's such an interesting guy. You know, I'm not crazy about his politics, but uh, but 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 he's pretty deep thinker philosophically. That's and at ninety
0: three, Michael. That's at ninety three. That's crazy. What,
1: what's in, What's not? Yeah, oh, I know. He's 93 years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, on the free will determinism, you you were pushing him on that. <laughs> yeah, but I loved his just single line. What difference does it make? No one actually believes in determinism. Even the determinists, the moment they walk out of their office and go out in the world, they don't act determined. They act like they're free. He's
0: like, <laughs> what about the main one? Common sense. <laughs>
1: yeah, common sense, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does it seem like yes okay I, I could be determined but i you know I, i'm the determining factor of my own physical system again back to that mind body problem um you know in a way uh, i i am part of the causal net of the universe i'm a physical being in a physical universe yes but i i can also affect the physical universe around me by the choices i make including myself i can affect my future self by choices i make now oh, well, but that was determined by your genes and your upbringing and the contingent events that happened the day before and last month and one hour ago, whatever. Okay, yeah, but I'm part of that. I'm interacting with all of that. That's part of me. You know, and anyway, so I'll be having this conversation with uh, Robert Sapolsky next month because he's got a big um, book coming
0: out. On I know, I have, yeah. Um, it's, it's called Determined, I think, eh?
1: Determined, yeah. I'm very yeah, I, I I just want to ask him, okay, when you go outside – do you look left before you cross the street? I mean, come on. <laughs> there's
0: a, a book that came out uh, that's coming out. Sorry, on the third of October is called um, is by Kevin Mitchell. Uh, free agents. Uh, the it's based on the evolution of consciousness. So that's something I think you should check out. It's oh, very good. Right.
1: Very right. Good. I. I it, again, you know, I get these books every week in my office here. I have just hundreds of books stacked up behind me, uh, and there's a lot of books on determinism and free will. I mean, mm. making the argument a book length. I mean, <laughs> big thick books. Yeah. You know, making the argument that determinism is true or or compatibilism, mostly not libertarian free will, but compatibilism mm. is the preferred position. Making super strong arguments, and I read them. I read them both and go, "That's a good argument." And then I read the other one. It's like, "That's a good argument." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> so back fun. to you know, kind of back to the bigger picture. Then, how can we figure out who's right?
0: Yeah.
1: Are and the answer may be it's.
0: Are we determined to figure this out?
1: It may come down to what Chomsky said. It's just you know, just go outside and just walk around and and think what what's actually going on here. I am making decisions. I am free. You know, okay, technically you're not free to do anything. I mean, you know, I can't play NBA basketball. Okay? <laughs> you know, I don't. We're not talking about that. But just you know. Okay you know should i should i have the chocolate chip cookies this afternoon or not i I have some say in that matter even though i'm tempted Mm. you know and, and like another one of my questions i have for people determinists is you know the the person that you know is subject to the opioid crisis somebody who has true addictions they really can't they have a difficult time controlling their urges and this has been a huge problem so but we know that actually that affects a small percentage of people who have taken opioids it it's it's like 1% you know are are having such strong addictions they cannot control themselves and then they have serious medical problems or death okay but i don't have that problem like my my father was an alcoholic one of my two sisters is an alcoholic my father's father my grandfather was an alcoholic one of his two brothers was an alcoholic but i'm not i can drink i can drink one two three i can stop at any time i don't care it doesn't really matter uh and lucky me okay so i don't feel like i have super willpower or whatever but to the determinist what does that mean the, the addict is l- more determined and i'm less determined
2: hmm.
1: you know can you say i just have more degrees of freedom and they have fewer degrees of freedom you can just reframe it that way in terms of volition which is what dan Dana does and hmm. uh, uh Fre- freedom evolves uh, which I really like that book, you know, just more, more, just think of degrees of freedom of a machine. You know, most machines are re- restricted in their degrees of freedom, how much they can move or what choices they can make or whatever. And, um, you know, in sports, for example, I was thinking about this with tab and playing tennis a lot in the last year. And um, you know, the degrees of freedom is too wide for for my control and therefore i'm not a very good player but the more practice i have and the more lessons i take uh, i am able to restrict the degrees of freedom so that the serve is more consistent every single time mm. and and i've noticed the professionals they all have these kind of obsessive little ticks that they do you know they bounce the ball just the right number of times and they do this with the hair and then just that and the arm and the jersey and the and they're trying to restrict the degrees of freedom so they they, they have fewer errors or it's just the same every shot right? and in a way you know that that's a good way to think about human behaviors is degrees of freedom mm. and i would say that the addict just has fewer degrees of freedom they they just can't control the behavior as much as rather than saying they're more determined or less determined which i think is a, a weird way to say it anyway <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know there's th- this is the thing with this topic there's, as you said there, there's so many arguments back and forth it, it, it bec- it's very convincing sometimes to, when you read an opposing argument I mean have you read just desserts by Dennett and Rick Crusoe i I had the
1: two of them on the show yes yes i think you i know, as well, yes. Yeah, and, and it's like, at the end, it's like, yeah, okay, th- those are both great arguments.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you do
1: <laughs> But where are we? We're right to where, back to where we started two hours ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible. I mean, he comes with a hard compatibilist take, and then, I mean, you've got Dennis, who's got the compatibilist take within it, but then they're both still making one assumption there, is that it's determined. Everything is determined. And then you've got people making a completely different argument. And these are very intelligent people making different claims. Where do you stand at this point? Do you
1: have a position? Yeah, well, I, I I think I like the idea of self-determined. I think that's the title of a book, in fact, yeah. in which you can actually, this this was by a psychologist, a clinician, I think, who trains people on how to control their urges, you know, addicts and cigarette smoking and whatever, and that you can actually do this. People learn to control their emotions and their addictions and their predilections uh, in the same way of, you know, uh, um, what do they call it? Um, a violence training, no um uh what is it, aggressive, you know, people that that have self-control issues with oh, yeah. with violence. So,
0: uh uh
1: anger, anger, anger management. Anger management. Okay. You know, so you just train people. Okay, when you feel this urge coming up, here's what you got to you know, count to 10, walk outside, you know, stop the conversation. You know, there's just certain tools you can have at the ready. And people do learn to do this. They really do. Addicts really do control their urges, and cigarette smokers stop smoking alcoholics stop drinking it's harder for them but it's so when you train them and they learn it and they actually do it what is going on there you know they're gaining more self-control they're they're determining their self their future self i think a useful way to think about it is is our 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 current self and our future self it's sort of a a weird thing but we all do it like where do i I want to be tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, ten years from now, and I can project that. You know, thanks to the fact we have a big uh, cortex, we can. Pr- it's really th- the fact that we can project into the future, is probably what makes us different from other species, who can project a little bit into the future, an hour maybe, but you know, we can project infinitely. Yeah. And it's like that that episode of Simpsons where uh, Homer's about to drink his twenty third beer or whatever, and his Marge says. You know, you're going to regret that tomorrow. And he goes, that's future Homer's problem, man. I don't, I don't, (laughs) that poor sucker, (laughs) like it's somebody else, you know? And uh, so there's lots of examples of this, you know, there's apps you can get, you know, where you, uh, you know, kind of write down or project publicly what your goals are so that you now you feel more motivated to go, you know, I want to lose this many pounds this month. And you tell your friends and. By doing that, you're sort of pressuring yourself, mm. right? Uh, uh, to, to to when the temptation comes, well, darn it, I'd really like that cookie, but I told my wife, I told my friends, I announced on Twitter, you know, that I'm going to lose ten pounds this month, so I got to do it. You know, and there's just lots of examples of that. You know, you could, like just anticipate. So here's your self control like tomorrow morning, tomorrow's Tuesday uh, morning, the guys leave at 7 a.m. at the pier here in Santa Barbara on our morning bike ride. They ride down to Ventura and back 50 miles round trip. They leave at 7. And uh, okay, I got to, they don't wait for me. <laughs> so you know, I got to set the alarm. I know what I'm going to future Michael's going to be like at five in the morning. I'm not going to like it. Set the alarm. But if I have my bike clothes already out, and I got the coffee machine ready to go, and my water bottle is already filled and in the fridge. The bike is in the back of the car, ready to go. Tires are pumped up and so on. Then that's, I know that future Shermer is going to be weak at five in the morning and not want to do those things, and I'm going to miss the ride. Mm-hmm. So the night before, I take all these steps to, to, so that future Shermer doesn't have this problem. That's basically a model for everything that we do. You know, I don't want to do this, so I better do that i better make these changes now for future and you know this is what you know libertarian paternalism is all about most people are not good at this so you know i don't know some huge 60 percent of americans or something have no money for savings mm. for retirement none and some either huge even larger percentage would not even be able to take like a 400 hit in a month where they had like a medical emergency. They don't even have 400 bucks to save, saved up to cover some unforeseen expense. You know, that's a failure of projecting yourself into your future. Well, what can we do about that? Well, this is what libertarian paternalism, you know, um, Dick Thaler's theory that he was part of the Obama administration, uh, where uh, choice architecture, right? So companies will withhold, well, first of all, the government withholds your your taxes your money before you see it. Mm. Right Bef- before withholding was invented by the IRS, people would actually deposit their entire paycheck and then have to write a check to the government. Well that the compliance was much lower cuz <laughs> you can see it there it is it's in my bank account. No, I have to give it away. Yeah. But if it's taken out of the paycheck before you even see it, right? Withholding uh, that, you know, that makes people feel less bad about taxes, right? <laughs> so, you know, corporations are now, uh, big corporations, you know, you have a retirement account. Now, maybe you only work there for a year or five years or whatever. You still get some of it, but they know people are bad about this. So they're going to just withhold some of your paycheck every month. And we're going to take a hundred bucks a month and we're going to put it in this, uh, you know, S and P 500 indexed mutual fund for you. And when you're done here, whenever that is, you get the money. It plus all the interest that accrued on it, and then the stock market goes up or down, whatever it does. And there's variations of this. You can have a high risk one where maybe you have tech stocks, a low risk one where you have the big cap industrial companies. Maybe you just have bonds that are guaranteed to go up, you know, one percent a year or something. And because that's your preference, so you get to choose, right? So this is the libertarian paternal. This is the libertarian part, right? Or you know, menus are designed along this this line where you know the the, the, the kind of rich, sugary desserts at the back of the menu and the healthy stuff or the cafeteria layout for kids you know, in high school. The healthy stuff is at the front of the line where you're going down with your tray and the desserts are at the end of the line. There's just hundreds of examples like this in, in my here. I'll show you my driver's license here from California is another example. Uh, here we go. So you'll see a little red dot there. <laughs> Next uh, to my face. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is me opting in to give my organs away if I'm killed. Mm. and But my organs are still working to somebody who needs my heart or lungs or whatever. And um, and so I had, but I had to opt in for that. Otherwise, I'm not donating my organs. In Oregon, north of us here in California, you are donating your organs. Unless you punch the tab on the driver's license that says I'm opting out. Mm. So Oregon has a much higher rate of organ donation than California california okay. just by the choice architecture of opt-in versus opt-out okay mm. all of this comes from this whole free will determinism thing you know there's something in between we, you know we we're not free to do anything of course but you can nudge people and you can nudge yourself knowing these things to change your future behavior well who is doing that you are mm. you know well you is a delusion there is no self oh come on you know okay maybe technically there is no self up there somewhere it's a whole bunch of neural networks and you know, whatever but it you know again just look out the window <laughs> you know common sense when you're walking around don't you feel like you're a, a self and people treat you like you are a person yeah yeah so <laughs>
0: my question is 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 it safe to actually show your driver's license i just want to make sure oh i don't i don't <laughs> care what. Just making sure. oh you
1: mean for Oh, you mean for, um, yeah, for uh, ID? Per, okay, maybe we better blur that okay, out. I'll, yeah, I'll,
0: so. I'll cut that out for you. <laughs> yeah,
1: just in case it showed my driver's license number, I guess. Yeah, I
0: I'm not sure that. what the implications would be, so I'll just cut that out just in yeah. case. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you, but you get the point. Yeah. yeah no, so, so Michael, with I mean, I think the fascinating no, but, thing about sorry, continue.
1: Well, I was going so you think about all these things. what What is your answer to all these problems? How do you think about so, it?
0: I mean, it's such a difficult one because from a medical perspective, when I treat patients, I try and think about, okay, do I really apply that? because because there was a very big chunk of my life where I did perceive determinism as the as the argument and the conclusion for me. I mean, I, I thought this is an illusion. I even came into consciousness with that perspective when I when I first before starting the podcast I even wrote in my dissertation on illusionism as a theory of consciousness defended Daniel Dennett Keith Frankish all these all the illusionists and I use psychiatry to back this up since starting the podcast that view is completely changed I have no idea where I stand I I <laughs> mind body solution with with the passionate curiosity but I always say take one step closer to the solution rather than say we have we will we'll find the solution because that level of skepticism is always there. I don't think, I think it's too big a problem. I think, not, not even a problem, I, I agree with you that even saying mind-body problem creates that dichotomy that I still don't think we understand. And, and we shouldn't even be making with so much fur, like fervor and tenacity. We, so I always say one step closer to the mind-body solution. But I think, it's, I also don't want to say I'm a mysterian in the sense that I think we'll never figure this out. Um, but I don't think we will. <laughs> That's the tough one. Uh, have you read a book called Conscious Mind, Resonant Brain by uh, Steven Grossberg? No, I don't know that one. So, so Steven Grossberg, uh, he's an emeritus professor at Boston. And he's con- a lot of colleagues in the field, a lot of neuroscientists call this guy the Einstein of the mind, the, the Newton of the brain. And, and, and they say this with so much, um, they mean it. They legitimately say this like he's one of the brightest men of our time. He wrote a book when he was around 17 on consciousness. And and, and just do it. I, I'm not even going to uh, destroy this wonderful piece of art, but I want you to read it at some point if you ever get the chance. But there's certain neuroscientific theories of consciousness that I've noticed that really, really are doing an amazing job. Most of them incorporate a lot of physics and mathematics at this point. But my biggest concern with that is, is we've always done this. We've always had this, this way of using the latest science to explain phenomena. So pumps and... Vessels, at one point, I mean, consciousness was was merely that, and and we continuously do this, which is why, initially, I came to the illusionist argument. I think Dennett's approach to philosophy and science in general was very good for science and philosophers, scientists and philosophers, to realize that you have to incorporate the new neuroscience to the philosophy. Uh, there's mm-hmm. this element there. Well, what are your thoughts on so in consciousness? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, I
1: think in general, neuroscience is still a fairly new field. When I was in undergraduate at Pepperdine I took a course in physiological psychology there was no neuroscience that was it and it's like well what's this okay oh I see neurons and the neural <laughs> system in the brain and like all right yeah I guess this is yeah this is important uh you know and that was just the 70s that's not that long ago yeah that long history of science physics goes back you know hundreds of years four or five hundred years you know we have a long ways to go so I suspect you know Centuries from now, maybe four or five hundred years from now, if we came back, we were chronically frozen and woken up, going, "Oh, oh, we didn't know this, and that explains the mind-body problem or the hard problem of consciousness." We're not even asking it that way; we're asking it this completely new way. Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes more sense. You know, but I, if I knew what that was, I, <laughs> I would implement it. But I don't. Yeah. I just don't know what people how people are going to conceive of it. I mean, you mentioned this book; I didn't know. There's a lot of books on this, and. Yeah. You know, maybe this guy's got it right, but maybe not. I don't know, but maybe there'll be somebody another Newton of the mind, you know, in a mm. century from now, and uh, you know, and he'll figure it out or she'll figure it out, whatever. So I, you know, I don't know.
0: It's, I, I was I was going to touch on. Sorry, I didn't really answer your question though. But in terms of the free will debate, I mean, when I practice with patients, I find it very difficult to then apply those theories as we were just discussing. It's it's impossible. It's very difficult to apply that practically to a patient if you're trying to change someone, make their life better somehow you can't just tell them that reality controls everything and and there's nothing no. you can do i mean it just just does not work practically so there is that morality/ethical slash dilemma practical dilemma that we have to face and i mean obviously that's something we're going to have to touch on in terms of the free will debate what is your understanding of its implications on morality and
1: well the the research on that is pretty clear now i think mm-hmm. that you know people that are primed to consider the determinist position as the correct one, then feel they have less personal responsibility, less accountability for their moral actions. They feel like there's no point in trying to do things because it's all determined. I don't think it's a good position to take. The implications of what you believe does not make something true or false, but it it certainly uh, suggests strongly that what people believe matters in terms of their behavior. And believing that you have some volition and you can do something about your life does make people more likely to do something about their lives. Right. So again, these clinical psychologists that work in this field that, you know, like addiction and cigarette smoking and things like that, self-control, you know, they, they definitely present a model in which you can change. And here are the patients I've worked with that have changed their lives. Testimonials, they have databases of this, you know, that people really do gain more self-control by understanding what the causal vectors are. Causal vectors, influencing vectors, or something you know that that shapes their lives, and knowing that you can do something about it. You know, maybe not every time. You know, there are still people dying of the opioid crisis because you know they they just can't control themselves. They just just try and try, they just can't do it. Um, the rest of us are paying for that in a way. This is another part of this debate about painkillers. You mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of people that need painkillers are now having a hard time getting them because. The doctors are, you know, afraid of getting sued. And you know, if somebody kills over dead. The authorities are coming after them because of what happened with the Purdue Pharmaceutical and the Sacra family and all the lies about the addictiveness of these painkillers. I'm mm. you know, just watching that Netflix. Um, a docudrama on this. No, it's just a drama called Painkillers. It's, I think, six parts or whatever. It's really worth it hmm. to watch. They just lied. I mean, and they captured the regulatory state. I mean, when RFK Jr. rants about big pharma, he's right <laughs> about that part. You know, they really did. They just pay off these regulators. <laughs> it's, like, astonishing.
0: Because uh, cont- we, I mean, when I practice, I mean, I'm often thinking about these things. I'm wondering, like... And even within the medical community, when when you try and have a conversation like that to a medical doctor, a colleague, the, the moment you bring these things up, they immediately label it. I mean, your book's called conspiracy, but they immediately think it's a conspiracy. They, they don't even go beyond to, to try and determine whether their views, their values, their ethics were formed and and just almost curated. And Because med school is a long process. It's a very long journey to indoctrination. And I'm not saying that obviously the medical science we were taught is incorrect, but I am saying it is filtered with so much misinformation and guidance from above that we don't really take note and, and understand.
1: Yeah. I think this is happening in the trans movement now too. The the medical profession seems to be buying into the idea of gender dysphoria as being much more pervasive than it actually is mm. or it ever was. It was always there at some tiny um Percentage, it you was know, like one tenth of one percent. People like this and now. All of a sudden, it's you know ten percent, twenty percent. These kids, or even more. And you know, most of the medical associations seem to be buying into this. Some of the ones in Europe now are having a change of heart on this. That this is probably not a good idea. And the evidence doesn't look like medically transitioning a child reduces their, or a teenager especially reduces their anxiety. Depression and uh, me- mental issues they're having by going through puberty, thinking, "Well, if I maybe I'm in the wrong body, this is the model, and therefore my uh, uh, mental issues, psychiatric issues, depression, anxiety, and so forth will go away if I transition." It doesn't look like that's happening at all, and 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 a lot of these kids are being sterilized and you know ruined for life uh, sexually. And in their gender is confused. So anyway, but uh, uh, I, I think some somehow the medical profession got captured by this ideology mm. in the way that, you know, we all want to be liberal, tolerant and accepting of people the way they are. And if they tell us this is the way they are, you know, I've got somebody who says, hey, I'm gay. OK, you know, but well, what do I know what's in your head? And, and that should be OK. You should be the way you want. So I think it's like an extension of that. Yeah. and uh but at some point didn't you take a, an oath to first do no harm <laughs> right so uh you know maybe we should do some watchful waiting here and you know not get captured but anyway the larger point here is 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 that even medical professional organizations can get captured yes uh, by things and uh, you know that's this is my problem with RFK Jr because he you know he's a vaccine denier he has a lot of goofy ideas that are just hmm. obviously wrong and he never changes his mind. That's the other thing that bothers me. I, I only want to be right. I don't want to be wrong. If somebody will just show me where I'm wrong, I'll change my mind. Well, then people do, and he doesn't respond. So that, you, that he's not a fair actor, you know. But he's right when he says, you know, you can't really trust big corporations and big government agencies because they, they they're corrupt. And It's like, yeah, there is a lot of examples of that. Mm. That's unfortunate that way. And I think those those are two examples.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to know that people. People often think that you have to agree with everything someone says to agree with someone, which is the biggest, right. flaw. I mean, it's, it's the worst thing you can actually do. I mean, I mean, when I'm talking to these guests and if I agree with certain aspects, they often think, then they label me into a category with him. And so I must be, let's say, I must think consciousness is fundamental because I'm talking to Bernardo O'Donnell. I actually love these ideas. It's great to explore them. Yeah. And we don't have to agree. That's the beauty behind this podcast. You're exploring these ideas. That's the beauty behind yours. You're able to have a diverse variety of opinions without trying to indoctrinate someone or or change their belief or dogmatize them somehow.
1: Oh, totally. I love the ideas. Like, are we living in a matrix? You know, this is fun. I uh, You talk about this for hours. Um, in fact, David Chalmers' latest book is on this. Yes. Essentially that, uh, you know, we're kind of, we could be living in a matrix kind of thing. And uh, an artificially induced uh you know, reality and so on. It's big fun, but again, back to your comments, you know, Chomsky's common sense. Go outside and look around. Does it look like we're living in a matrix? Is there any like buffering going on? Like, oh <laughs> it's you it's have to wait for
0: the-, the the last video I just posted on for thought of the podcast is as as with Tom Campbell and the and the, the tagline was we live in a virtual reality. It's very similar. They start with the same premise of, of okay, consciousness is fundamental, and it's all information. See, the fascinating part is is it becomes after that assumption is made, the science behind it becomes very accurate. So he then goes into the evolution of species. Everything else is still very detailed and well, um, yeah. and and that's when the, when the when the argument becomes quite difficult to to counter because it's still grounded in so much science, and it almost has some more explanatory power sometimes. When you start questioning your own reality, and I'm always—I'm like, oh, but what? What is going on here? <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't know. I—I'd say it's highly unlikely we're living. Yeah, I mean, that, so I get the arguments. You know, the what are the Chertokan principle? What are the chances that you know that we're the first? We're probably in the middle of the civilizations, and some are more advanced, and they've created this virtual reality, and we're one of those. Yeah, yeah. maybe. But it's got to be running on a hardware somewhere. Mm. It can't just be all virtue right virtual as i understand it virtual reality you have to have a hardware system set up that runs the original program Hmm. and you could have programs on top of pro within programs but there has to be a hardware somewhere so you'd have to have a massive amount of memory to run an entire universe Hmm. as a virtual reality uh i mean frank tipler in his book the physics of immortality it'd have to be 10 to the power bits to replicate everybody who ever lived mm. and the and the universe itself essentially it's just the universe it's great the universe <laughs> wow. uh and that, that's how many digits their binary digits there are in it, or something like that um but again what's what's more likely i mean let's that, just look outside it doesn't seem like uh that we're living in a, a virtual reality i don't know my favorite's
0: Mike, sorry. I think uh, Michael. I think it froze a little there. Let me just make sure my connection's stable on this side. We had an issue earlier. Michael, sorry about that. There we go. <laughs> sorry about that. I'm not. Oh, talking. there we go. I have no idea. Hey,
1: maybe <laughs> I know what happened. We are in a in a matrix, <laughs> and somebody got somebody got pissed that we identified them, Back and the they code. cut us off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a, so. Okay, I think a, a great thing to do at this point, let's shift it because I mean, you're you're not a someone who's an idealist, so let's not even focus on that. Let's go back into the material grounding, and and discuss. So within consciousness, Michael, there's different theories of consciousness within a physicalist perspective. You've got illusionists, you've got panpsychists who think there's incremental levels of of what could be conscious, um, emergentism. So at some point. Add enough complexity you'll get to the outcome I mean there's obviously philosophical ideas but they have many scientific implications I mean Christoph Koch panpsychism can work with IIT very well where do you fall within this spectrum of ideas
1: uh, I do think it's a you know complex adaptive systems in which you know more layers of neural networks the more complex your conscious sentience can be you know I think all animals have some level of sentience. I think my dog, like Christoph, talks about his dog a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think my dog is sentient, for sure. And he has, you know, is he conscious? You know, okay, so much of it depends on how you define these terms. And we just say, you know, consciousness is a form of sentience. You're aware of your environment and you have a model of your environment. You interact with the environment. If you want to go beyond that you're aware that you're aware i don't think my dog's aware that he's aware of course i wouldn't know for sure but it seems (laughs) unlikely that requires you know layers on top of layers of neural networks something like that um you know antonio damasio has this theory about you know the models of the of the world the brain has these models of everything so they can even just navigate around the room here without bumping into stuff i have a model of what the room is like i have a model of my body you know, how my body, I have a model of how my body moves around these objects and so on. And there's just models on top of models. But, you know, in, in, in a kind of a meta way, if you have models of models and models and models, at some point, you, you know, consciousness just kinds of, kind of emerges consciousness in this sort of self-consciousness way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm aware that I'm aware uh, of my models, something like that. Although that always had a feeling to me of, and then a miracle happens. Mm. You know, so we have this physical system and it gets more complex and and then this magical thing happens and yeah. consciousness happens, you know. what, what
0: the it's, combination problem we do- in panpsychism. It's the combination problem. I mean, at, at what point right. is it really happening? We don't have an explanation for that.
1: Right. It feels like we're we're doing the God of the gaps argument and then in that gap right there, that's where the miracle happens or God steps in or or the consciousness comes online or... I don't know. Again, that that may be a conceptual problem we're talking about. Maybe we just don't understand enough about the brain. Uh, You know, again, I'm old enough, about to turn 69 next week, that I remember older theories of consciousness and how the brain works, and they're always changing. Mm. And it's like maybe we just really don't know enough to know how to get to an answer or even construct the problem in a way that's answerable, that it's a soluble problem. And it could be that way we're treating the hard problem of consciousness is in a way it's insoluble in that way. That is to say, what it's like to be something. Mm. You know, how would a how you know how would you answer that question? What it's like to be a bat? You know, well, if I if I went into my little closet over there and closed the door, and I I could tell you know which by the structure of the closet which way without seeing anything the structure of it just by my voice. So maybe that's kind of what it's like to use uh, um, sonar, like a bat does—you know, bouncing sound waves off. But you know, that's just a crude approximation. Mm. You know, maybe if I bolted on some big ears and I, you know, develop some sound system and I change my cortex, and it, at some point, I would just be a bat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be—I wouldn't be a human asking what it's like to be a bat. I would just be a bat, not wondering anything except for maybe what it's like to be a human. Uh, <laughs> so in a way, I, I just don't see how the problem could be answered. You know, the the problem of other minds, you know, I, I don't know for sure that you're not just, you know, a philosophical zombie. Mm. And it, it looks like, I mean, you're nodding. Uh, it looks like you're comprehending what I'm saying, but you could, you could just be some robot that fakes all that. I don't know for sure. Mm. But I, so here I apply the, the pretty good principle to myself. Uh, I do what you do. I'm not special. You're probably not special. You're probably just another human like me. And all our brains are pretty much wired up the same way with, with neurotransmitter substances and synapses. It's you're probably feeling what I'm feeling. There's a good chance Uh that when you show emotions that I recognize, there's a reasonable chance that you are feeling what I feel inside. That seems about as good as it can get without my actually knowing for sure that your red looks like my red or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's fundamentally, I, I, that's why I think it, it really is one of those impossible tasks. It's like hitting, just hitting a brick wall. Um, you'll, it's, it's almost impossible to ever really experience someone else's red. It's, it's almost like a fundamental impossibility of reality. But then again, I don't want to go it's as far as saying that this is almost an Ian Vital of, of of another topic.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. It's back to that kind of dualism. It, it suggests that the little homunculus in me, my mini me, can tiptoe over into your skull to see what your red looks like. Mm. I mean, it's just not, it's just an incomprehensible idea.
0: It is. It's just fundamentally. I mean, and that's another example. I mean, I, we're still stuck in that dualistic way of thinking. I mean, even with the, with the virtual reality. I mean, if there's a software or a hardware, there still has to be these two elements. Almost, it's it's like we've got to have these two component parts in order to have this discussion, which is strange, very difficult to escape.
1: Yeah, back to Chomsky, it's like, what what does it seem like? Use common sense, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it more likely that all the other people around you are like you,
0: Mm. they're not
1: philosophical zombies. And while you can't know exactly what they're feeling, you can ask, Mm. you can look, you can be perceptive. Well, here's this person crying on the sidewalk and they're lying there. I suspect they feel sad. That's a reasonable assumption, right? There, there's something going on. I'm going to walk over there and go, "Are you okay? What's can I do something to help?" You know, it's not. It's not. That's not delusional. That's that's a reasonable assumption.
0: Mm. Your your initial approach when you focused on that sentience, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, Nicholas Humphrey, I'm, I'm sure. Um, yeah, you wrote the- I, I don't know sentience yeah he wrote the book sentience so he he calls it almost the invention of consciousness so he started off as an illusionist because he he believes that these introspective ideas that we have about the mind and the way we introspect about it eventually culminates into this conclusion that we have this almost essence like entity that is consciousness and that's the fundamental problem is the way we're conceiving of this entity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but his view also changed over time and then his view became what he now calls phenomenal surrealism he actually thinks that in fact, the, the essence like experience that we are experiencing, even though it might be something akin to an introspective mm. illusion, it's still actually more real than than what red actually is. So in essence, because we're experiencing redness from this wonderful uh, mechanism that we call my bodies, it turns out to be even more real than the actual reality, because this is our fundamental. <laughs> experience. Mm. I, I might be butchering it a little bit, but uh, That's basically where he goes with it.
1: Yeah, I was trying to pull up something here to read. Uh, Steve Pinker had a nice description of this problem in his book, Enlightenment Now. Let me see if I can Mm. find it. I don't have the book here in front of me, but I- He also wrote a great book. I think it was
0: called um, How Minds Work. I think I've got it here somewhere.
1: Yeah, that was his uh, second book. Uh, Language Instinct was the first one uh yeah okay let's see
0: no I don't have that but anyway
1: yeah but but the idea is it, it, again it may just be one of these um insoluble problems because of the way we're conceptualizing it in the first place
0: yeah I mean there's that there, there's clearly that language element that that really does limit us uh I mean we can only do yeah. science based on the way we could communicate the science I mean even the way we think yeah we can never really step out of language while thinking like when I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to Michael later. I'm still thinking about me saying the fact that I'm going to talk to Michael later. I mean, it's still almost a verbal thought process. So it's in a a sense. Uh, Oh, I
1: found some notes here. I made on this problem. Donald talking about Donald Hoffman's idea. Uh, Let me see what else we got here. Let me also
0: find that Isaac Asimov, I really want you to read this. Isaac Asimov.
1: But you didn't freeze on me there. Oh, no, you're looking for um, me. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I'm just checking out the, this essay I want you to check out with Isaac Asimov. Oh, right. Um, and let's see if I can find this. I think, uh, oh, it's called The Beginning and the End. This collection of mm. twenty-three essays, wrote a couple of decades. It could be the same thing I'm thinking about. I'm not really sure. Mm. Read it a while back, and it's oh, it's a wonderful. I see you've got the frames there. Behind. Yeah. What 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 inspired those?
1: Which frames? Oh oh oh, oh uh, Asimov. Well, he was. Uh, we we put him on uh, on the cover of our first issue of Skeptic magazine. Uh-huh. Let's see if I had that here. Let me see uh yeah hang on let me grab that i'll show you there it is volume one number One. Oh, look at that <laughs> 30, 30 years 31 time. years ago and you can still order it we have cases of them right here in my office <laughs> so people that,
0: that, can still get i mean isaac it's is still one of the i mean he's he's, the, he's one of the goats of science fiction he's definitely one of the greatest of all time he's my one of my he's probably my favorite
1: oh yeah oh yeah yeah, I see
0: definitely. today you
1: actually tweeted something about Arthur C. Clarke. What is that about what uh, again? Uh oh the uh, uh, oh 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 this morning's tweet. Yes, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read it cuz it's hmm. I don't know, I just dis- I just disagreed with what he said here, but um from his quote um two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we're not. Both are equally terrifying. I don't think it's terrifying at all.
2: <laughs>
1: First of all, as I wrote uh, if the former, all the more reason we need to be good stewards of our home planet as well as become a multiplanetary, interstellar species, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself, said Carl Sagan. If the latter, it would be exhilarating to make contact with extraterrestrials, learn from them how they solve various problems on their home planet, like collective action problems like global warming, nuclear proliferation, or technical problems like sustainable energy and alternatives to chemical rockets, And scientific problems like the nature of consciousness, dark matter, dark energy, etc. It would be exciting either way. I don't know why uh, he said that it's terrifying. You know, there is this kind of meme going around about, um, you know, why the government doesn't want to disclose what it knows about aliens, because it'll terrify people and, and people will lose their religions and the stock market will crash. This is nonsense. Why would any of that happen? I've never heard a good explanation for that. <laughs> <It's> much <laughs> less like that. Uh, since we're on the subject, like uh, that AI will cause the extinction of this, not only our species but all life on Earth. How? How would this happen? Mm. And I never hear a good answer. You know, short of something like it'll trick uh, Putin into launching a, a nuclear strike, and we'll uh, strike and it'll be global thermal nuclear war, and it'll kill everything on Earth. Yeah, but there's so many ways to prevent that from happening already in place that a deep fake video seems unlikely to be able to trigger something like that.
0: Yeah. Do, you, do, do you think AI though, do you think it will be the, well, If let's say if there was, as you said earlier, if it was the teleological entity to take forward this sort of thought process, do you think it'd be, we, we would either join somehow and become symbiotic creatures with these machinery? Yeah. Or do you think that's the best? Yeah,
1: I think it'd I think it'd be like a, another tool, an instrument we can use. Mm. or integrate with our, our own lives, something like that. I mean, we already do this. Cochlear implants for hearing, you know, uh, hip replacements. I've had two. <laughs> yeah, just just using technology. We already do this, you know, this yeah. using technology to make life better. Rather than thinking of it, you know, the negativity bias, you know, what could go wrong? How about what could go right? Mm. You know, how about the, you know, the development of drugs is a, a lengthy, expensive process because you have to test all these different conditions, you know, computers, AI could do this way faster. You know, how about how about we just solve one little problem like Alzheimer's? Let's see if AI can help us solve one. You know, there was all you know, like when I was writing about longevity and living forever, and Ray Kurzweil, the is coming, we get to live forever, and so on. You know, all right, forget forget this goal. Like we're all, we're going to live for forever. How about just get me to a hundred? without Alzheimer's, okay, a- a- or cancer. You know, just start with one little thing. Just solve one problem. Let's just put AI to work and see if it can solve this problem. Like self-driving cars, this would be good. I think it's a much harder problem than anyone realized. Uh, and so, but keep working on it, you know. If if, if you could just, it, it, instead of like self-driving completely, how about just, you know, like, you know, not, you know, what no lock brakes, well, that, that was developed in the 70s. Just little things like that. You know, nav systems that are a little more efficient. Um, anything that could just slightly reduce the amount of carnage in automobile accidents. Let's just work on that. You know, don't 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 have this. It's all or none kind of thing.
0: I think another great application for what I was thinking about quite recently was was psychiatry. I mean, if you take the average lack of psychiatrists per patient, mm. I mean, if you could have artificial mm. intelligence having the psychotherapy, if we could get the best psychiatrists together. Allow this thing to machine learn, or sort of get some sort of an algorithm that allows it to communicate with patients. It would be quite remarkable what it could do.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That's another example. Back to the brain, how much we don't know. If you just take um, the the field of psychiatry and just take some of the psychoses like schizophrenia, you know, we still there's still so much we don't know about the cause treatments. It's really kind of depressing when you read the literature. Going, wow. You know, when I started college, you know, this was going to be it. We're going to solve this problem by the 90s. Mm. You know, it just didn't happen. And it's a much harder problem than we realized. But maybe, so maybe I I could help with that.
0: Mm. Exactly. How do you? Psychiatry has had all these revelations. I mean, the neuroscientific one, the genetic component. I mean, we thought we'd solve it with genes. I mean, we consistently failed at trying to figure out the condition.
1: Yeah, same thing with Alzheimer's, you know. I I don't have the Alzheimer's genes. I got the 23 and means so okay. But then when you actually read the literature on that, it's like those two genes uh they don't make that big of a difference, you know. I mean, it, it's a it's a you know, it's not a determining factor. It's just uh, like could nudge you slightly in the direction of getting it from for some other reason that you're actually getting it, you know? exactly. Or you know, the plaques and tangles. Oh, Alzheimer's is the plaques and tangles. Well, but there are people who are autopsied and they have plaques and tangles and never showed any signs of Alzheimer's at all. And then there's people that die of Alzheimer's and they don't have any plaques and tangles. Okay. Obviously there's, there's more than that. <laughs> there's other, it's a really hard problem. Mm-hmm. So again, why not turn AI on that? See if we can solve those kinds of problems.
0: Yeah, no, I think, it, I think it's a I like,
1: uh, Ke- Kevin Kelly calls this uh, protopia. Mm. Rather than utopia, forget aiming for utopia, perfect, you know, life for everybody everywhere right now. That's not going to happen. How about protopia? Just make tomorrow slightly better than today. Just like 1% better, just a tiny little bit and, and do that every day for the next century and life will be quite a bit better. That's what we've been doing.
0: Yeah. So, so you, you agree basically with Stephen Pinker's assessment of the progress we've made so far. Oh yeah, mm. totally. what, what, yeah. what, what For those who disagree, what would you say
1: to them? Well, those who disagree are mostly um, subject to the negativity bias. Mm -hmm. That is to say, uh, negative things stand out twice as much as positive things. It's kind of a derivative of loss aversion in behavioral economics. Losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get somebody to make an investment, you have to show them that the payoff is going to be twice as rewarding as the Loss would feel bad because that that's going to drive their investment um, behaviors. And so we know, for example, like on social media, you know, that you could get 100 likes, but that one negative guy that, you know, that's the one that you'll remember. Who was this asshole that said that about (laughs) what about the 100 people that like you? Forget them. I don't like that. How come that guy doesn't like me? You know, th- those are the things that stand out. And there's a good reason for this, um, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. There's more ways for things to go bad than go, go good. There's more ways for your body to break down than it is for it to get better. It's just the way it is. Just nature runs its course. Uh, just take a, a, a sandcastle. You know, there's only so many limited ways you can shape sand with and water into some structure that looks nice like a sandcastle. But there's an infinite number of ways for it to wash away on a road and waves and wind and dogs and children and, you know, things that just cause it to to revert back into a blob of nothingness. Um, And that's what life is like. I mean, if you do nothing, uh, things just run down. Bedrooms get cluttered. Your body gets flabby. Your mind gets weak. <laughs> uh, beds don't get made on their own. You know, poverty is what you get when you do nothing. You know, we don't need books on poverty. We know what poverty poverty is the default. It's you know what's the origin of wealth? That's the hard problem, and uh, and so on. So. Um, yeah. Anyway,
0: yeah, it's, <laughs> almost like here, but, flipping, yeah. it's almost like flipping that framework and the perspective can actually make a big impact on the on finding solutions.
1: Oh, oh, oh sorry, I lost the thread there. Yeah. So the, the people that criticize me and Pinker and other positive people, progressivists, or whatever we <laughs> want to call it. Um, they're they're just more focused on the negative things. And the fact is, there will always be negative things. There will always be homicides, it's never going to be zero. There's always going to be a few racist assholes out there, misogynist assholes. And and they will stand out. Like, how can you say things are better in race relations when look what those police did to that black guy? Yeah, yeah I know it's terrible what they did, you know, George Floyd. Yeah, it's awful. It's terrible. But But let's not think that that's the way it normally is. What's the base rate compared to what? You know, and there are the data. You have to look at the data. You have to follow the trend lines, not the headlines. You know, the news by definition only reports the bad stuff. They don't report. You know, here we are at a school with our camera crew, and there's been no shootings all day. You're never going to get there. There's no news there. You know, news is when bad things happen. So i think most of the critics are just focused on the bad things or 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 even say you know life was better in the paleolithic you know we know from fossils that people were taller than they were you know in say 5000 bc you know they had fewer cavities they had uh, less arthritis in their bones you know they really had a better life than than you know all the way up until modern people Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, You know, diets, you know, the so-called Paleolithic diet, there's nothing magical about it, but it's the variation. They had about 300 different kinds of foods. We have about 30 different kinds of foods that we consume. It's better to have variety in your diet. That's the kind of lesson of that. But we're not going back to the Paleolithic where there's, you know, 100,000 people on the entire planet. That's never going to (laughs) happen. So we have to go forward Solving the problems that civilization caused, like a monoculture that produces very few food, substances, and sedentary lifestyle, and you know, on and on and on, diseases that spread in large populations that didn't have that problem in the Paleolithic, because these are small groups of a few dozen people, and so there were no... You know, disease contagions to rapidly spread through millions of people that just didn't happen. Well, OK, but, you know, how many of you want to go back to living off the land as hunter gatherers? You know, no, I wouldn't even know how to do it. Nobody could do it. Uh, and so, you know, just watch that show, Naked and Afraid. Yeah. <laughs> they dump those they dumped those people out there in the middle of nowhere and they got a week to find their way. Oh my God. This is, who wants to live like that?
0: I mean, another very common misconception is that you take the average person and you tell them you could go back in time uh, and they get all carried away like, yeah, I could invent everything. Yeah. I could do anything. But the truth is, they can't. The average human cannot do the most basic things we take for granted oh. every day. They think they can invent right. the meal all over again. They don't know where to begin.
1: Just think about dentistry. You know i mean it's just it's improved so much just in my own lifetime you know what the dentist can do to keep your teeth going when you live people live longer it's like a it's a miracle
0: <laughs> it's crazy the the amount of innovation and technology that we've i mean and it's it's consistently exponentially rising at this point so yeah
2: do you think
0: it's going to happen in the future i mean it's pretty phenomenal uh michael how are you doing for time at the moment you
1: Uh, I better stop at about seven minutes. So give me 15 minutes before my next podcast. So 11.15.
0: I think to close, Michael, your book's called Conspiracy. I mean, you want to just briefly run through me. Like from within this conversation, any high rated conspiracies could hinder this conversation somehow.
1: Well, I guess if it related to anything we're talking about, it's a signal detection problem. How do I know if this conspiracy theory is true or not? Now, the problem is there are conspiracies. You know, we mentioned some of those, you know, the big pharma capturing the regulatory state by bribing people. You know, this happens all the time, insider trading. You know, how do these congressmen start, you know, they get elected and they're worth nothing. You know, 10 years later, they're worth $100 million. How does this happen? <laughs> you know, they they conspire. There's insider trading. I mean, there's all kinds. Co- companies do this. Government agencies do, you know. Uh, you know, Watergate was a conspiracy. The CIA has done all sorts of things in, in its existence that, you know, without the approval of Congress or you know, maybe quasi-legal or not, assassination of foreign leaders, overturning foreign country elections to favor a dictator over the other dictator. Because we prefer the fascist dictator over the communist dictator because they're friendlier to U.S. business interests. This kind of stuff happens all the time. So, but that doesn't mean the government's hiding the aliens or they fake the moon landing or they orchestrated 9-11, you know you have to take them one at a time so then it becomes a signal detection problem you know i hear a conspiracy theory how do i know if it's true or not and then we can just apply the normal methods of rationality and in science to well okay let's ask what's the source of that claim who said that uh and you know where was that published and did anybody fact check it and what's the evidence for it how do you know that's true um it may be true again bayesian you know it, it maybe it's not zero uh, it could be true, but you know, does that fit with the way the world works? Um, is there how many people would have to be involved in the conspiracy? You know, a few people, okay, that that's possible. Most conspiracies involve very few people because people can't keep their mouth shut. They're incompetent. They, you know, coordinating. Everybody has to be at the right place at the right time, and there's a hundred different people that have to do their exact thing at two o'clock. Unlikely to happen. There's just too many chance contingencies, randomness, incompetence and so on i've been tweeting uh, since my book came out uh, the 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 kind of the standard skeptical line on this you know never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence or chance mm-hmm. and then and then the um uh the the plane crash with uh, prigozhin in it <laughs> i said never mind not this time <laughs> this one is definitely probably malice cuz you know but again how do i know that well everybody knows putin you know has his uh, enemies assassinated and so it's, you know, very likely to be the case in there. You know, so but again, you have to take them one by one. What's the evidence? What's the you know the likelihood that somebody could do that sort of thing? Do they have the power to do it? Are they in a position to do it? Um, and, and so forth. And, you know, that's what insider trading investigations are all about. That's, you know, what the SEC does when they launch those investigations or you know, congressional hearings on ethical uh, issues in Congress, uh, you know, the, they're they're looking for evidence for yeah. a conspiracy. Is it there or not? Yeah. You know, did the Democrats conspire to steal the 2020 election? Okay, that's a conspiracy theory. Could be true. Is it in fact true? And, you know, the, uh, how would you and I know who I wouldn't know even to, who to call, but the Department of Justice uh, can know, can check that. And they did. And you know, oh, but 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 they're Democrats. No, no, they actually weren't. Um, you know, the, Bill Barr, who was the um, who was the head of the Department of Justice, Attorney General Bill Barr, lifelong Republican, he voted for Trump <laughs> and so on. And he looked into it and said, you know, nope, there's nothing there. We got nothing, oh, you know. Wow. And then all those court cases, you know, dozens and dozens of court cases that were all thrown out. No evidence of vote tampering and so on. That's how you and I can know without checking ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, these are people that were, were in a position who would like to find that there was voter fraud, but in fact found none. So that tells us there's a pretty good chance there was no voter fraud. The 2020 election was on the up and up.
0: Mm. Uh, Michael, to close off, I mean, let's end it on a positive note. As you were talking, I mean, things are getting better. So I noticed that you love magic and you do a lot of these cool magic tricks. I saw them on YouTube and I was, I was curious to know, how, how, how do you see magic as a great tool? to uncover the, the true nature of reality and expose a lot of our flaws of thought. This is a great way to close.
1: Well, in the, in the same way that uh, these you know, famous psychology illusions work, they work, they in a way tell us how the brain actually works. Because normally we're not fooled by those things. It takes a special kind of way of the, the that the drawing is made or the structure or the magic trick is done to fool people. But that tells us that Actually, most of the time we're, we're not fooled um, and that we can figure out reality. You know, the magician has to go through great lengths to make these things work out a certain way um, or else, you know, the magic doesn't work. And, and in a way, it's it's why it's not fun to find out how most magic tricks are done because they're so obviously simple, just a misdirection or, you know, or, you know, whatever. I don't want to give away too much stuff, but uh, you know, the spoon, the spoon bending or the stuff, because I'm not a magician, but, um, but I like magic because it's a, it's an instrument to show people how easy it can be fooled if it's done in a certain way. And, you know, so when people tell me, so, well, Uri Geller, you know, he's bending spoons, he's using his mind and so on. And he moves the molecules of the atoms. Somehow he influences them. And I say, well, okay." so when you see David Copperfield make the Statue of Liberty disappear, do you think he actually moves the atoms of the Statue of Liberty and then puts them back? Well, no, of course not. I know he doesn't do that. That's impossible. Right. So it's a magic trick. Why wouldn't you think Uri Geller or some, some illusionist is just doing a magic trick? You know, or the psychics that, you know, allegedly talk to the dead. This is a magic trick. It's, you know, it's called mentalism. And they're cold reading, warm reading, hot reading. They have their techniques that really work. Mm. Try it and intrude and practice like magicians do. And they can fool people. So if you don't think Copperfield is really moving the Statue of Liberty, why would you think the psychic is really talking to dead people? You yep. know, I mean, anybody. First of all, anybody could talk to dead people. G- getting the dead to talk back—that's the hard part, right? So, how does it? How do they make it look like that's what's? Ha- it's a magic trick. Mm. So it's it's a, another instrument for us to say, "Don't be fooled." Look how easy it is to be fooled with this trick. Okay. So I'll tell you one story on a on a Scientific American cruise through the Bermuda Triangle, and I was one of the guest speakers. Big fun. So the dinner, we're all having dinner together every night and so somebody tells me the story oh i saw this guy bending the spoon it was incredible like Hurry geller it wasn't Hurry geller but you know and i just can't figure out how he did it and it wasn't just the normal thing where you 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 have the handle of the spoon and the bowl of the spoon and the, and the bowl just kind of bends down no he said it was twisted in a way that it was just impossible he could not have twisted it you know in this normal way because it's just the steel is too strong well this is another trick i happen to uh, know of how to do this bend that it's actually quite easy to do so as he's talking to me i take the spoon off my table and i put it down here below (laughs) below the table and i do the little bend trick and as he's finishing the story i said did it look anything like this and he's like oh oh no you just did that i go yep he goes how'd you do it i'm not gonna tell you (laughs) but it's really easy he's like oh (laughs) so it's a way of going look I know it seems like it could be this, but you know, don't be fooled.
0: It's often so disappointing when you see the reality. I mean, one of the people who got be intri- intrigued by the mind itself was Darren Brown. I'm not sure if. You oh think- yes,
1: well, he's of course he's phenomenal. He's uh- absolutely phenomenal. The way he does it, yes, he is brilliant. He's one of the great mentalists of all time, in my opinion. Mm. Now I know how he does a lot of it, but yeah. uh, but it's the execution that is so good and 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 artful i mean he's an artist It's just yeah. the way his presentation and the music and the the whole staged effects and so on yeah it's just great
0: yeah well michael thank you so much i mean this has been such a pleasure for me uh i've been following your work for so many years i mean i'm, I'm it's 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 a privilege to talk to you and I, and I appreciate your time so much
1: oh well thank you for having me and i i love your show too it's great your ah. conversations are always deep Ah, this is the amazing thing about podcasts. You can have deep conversations like this, without, you Just, it's never been that way before uh, in media. So that's no, good. It, it, it's All a right.
0: beautiful platform, man. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much once again. Any any final words from your side, <laughs>
1: Michael? Uh, well, uh, just listeners that are interested, you can go to skeptic.com and check out our magazine. Here, I showed you the Asimov one. Here's the latest issue. We're four color now. Physical magazine. It's still hanging in there. And uh, so we're supported by uh, Skeptic Society, 501c3 nonprofit, science education. So if you support us, go to skeptic.com.
0: And everyone can also, I'll put a link to the Michael Shermer show. Uh, Thanks again, Michael. I appreciate everything. Okay.
1: All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.